Welcome to the Week in IndyCar on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and our awesome friends at torontomotorsports.com, who have a great little offer for you. And this is going to extend one week. So we are recording this on Tuesday, June 4th. Be posting this on June 5th, but uh, we have a deal running through June 11th, so one week, and that is celebrating the 25th anniversary of TorontoMotorsports.com. So if you enter the letters MPP, Marshall Pruitt Podcast, when you are checking out at TorontoMotorsports.com for the next week, you will get 20% off of everything. It's pretty cool. I might actually have to use that little promotional code myself. Uh, 20% off everything they have in stock. Uh, Everything, IndyCar, everything, everything. Stickers, t-shirts, die casts, uh, you name it. 20% off everything in the store to definitely help our friends at torontomotorsports.com celebrate all the awesome things they do now celebrating that 25th anniversary. So hit up their site, torontomotorsports.com. Use MPP. When you are checking out and you will get a lovely 20% off. All right. Going to have a fun little show here. Going to start off with our man coming off a fine second place on Sunday at Detroit. That being Marcus Erickson. Really? As we kind of get into early in the conversation that lasts, I think, a little over 40 minutes. More or less saved his season. There's also some interesting news from him about his thoughts on IndyCar, knowing that He is definitely still plugged into the Alfa Romeo, a.k.a. Sauber Formula One team. Definitely some good news, some good thoughts from Marcus on future plans. Then we follow with Takuma Sato, who finished third on Saturday, also finished third at the Indy 500. And uh, I've never, well, let's just say that, uh, boy, he has really, late in his career, become a significant presence in IndyCar. And that almost never happens to someone who has been in the sport, been in the series for, you know, we're, we're not too far away from a decade now, especially someone now at 42 years old. Really, I don't know if I should say peaking because I don't know how high he can go. I know that we haven't always seen those heights, but we are definitely seeing them now. And then we close with an interview I did with Sean Lee, who is the CEO of Guess. The uh, GESS company, you might have seen sponsoring the cars driven by Pato Award this season, Colton Herta as well, and now in Texas coming up with the Andretti Autosport effort with Alexander Rossi. So I recorded that, I believe, Tuesday morning, something along those lines, at Indy. Uh, So that would be Tuesday leading up to Carb Day, and I had to leave uh, the next morning, so was not able to put all that together. So just conversation with Sean talking about guests and what they're trying to do in the series. The reason I wanted to speak with Sean twofold, one, he is a former racer, former open wheel racer, who's now the head of a fairly large company that is really trying to use IndyCar to drive awareness towards biofuels, renewable gas, et cetera, et cetera. And, A, that's awesome, but B, just curious to see their thoughts and reasoning why they've chosen IndyCar and why they're going to be doing more of these more driver-based sponsorships than just straight-up team sponsorships uh, and what they're hoping to do along with their partners, Capstone, and a few others. And 
again, it's not often you get a company or a leader of a company like this coming into IndyCar and wanting to spread the wealth and also trying to use IndyCar to raise awareness for something that they feel is really best for IndyCar compared to baseball, football, some other form of sporting endeavor. So that'll close our interviews, and then I will come in after all that and answer your questions. So before we get to Marcus Erickson, then Takuma Sato, then Sean Lee, and close with your questions, I wanted to give you a brief update here up front. Uh, definitely to thank everyone for the amazing outpouring of support. I have done my best. I've failed, but I've done my best to respond to all the texts. Gotten a lot of emails, um, number of phone calls, uh, just general stuff on social media from folks just wishing nothing but uh, warmth and strength and kindness and the offer and delivery of prayers. Um, just thank you to everybody, uh, knowing what's going on at home. Uh, my wife, for those who don't, uh, we were diagnosed with breast cancer in September. Uh, that surgery went very successfully at the beginning of November, learned that it returned to the same location about two months ago. Then about a m- one month ago, uh, my wife, just as I was getting ready to leave for, uh, the Indianapolis Grand Prix, my wife started having back pains, not uncommon. She's had those before, but uh, while on the trip, found that they became worse and worse and became just crushing, like shut down her entire world, could not almost move. And so I uh, rushed home a couple of days before carb day at the 500 and was really thankful that I did. Uh, also had the help of an amazing woman by the name of Joy, a registered nurse who um, I con- found on Yelp and asked to come check on my wife and she rushed her straight to the emergency room. The physician attached to my wife that did a lot of, uh, immediate blood work when I got there told me this, this timing, just know, um, this timing was perfect because your wife had about two days before she was either going to go into a coma or have a heart attack. And so after uh, picking myself up off the floor um, and just being so incredibly thankful for Joy rushing her to the ER, um, we found that the type of cancer that was attacking and had returned had also migrated uh, to my wife's back. And that was the cause of the debilitating back pain. And so she went into surgery last Wednesday. Uh, And this is something where your prayers, uh, the actual prayers that were said, uh, really did not uh, come back unreturned. They were certainly acted upon. And so she went through that, and that went incredibly well. So thank you once again. I mean, truly thank you. They were able to do an amazing job. Another part of that procedure was going in and essentially doing a restoration project. Truly, it's amazing um, what a ravenous kind of wrecking ball cancer can be once it um, gets to bone. And so that all went incredibly well. And the best part is after, so that happened Wednesday, got her back Wednesday evening. And I'm trying to think, I think Saturday, maybe Sunday, 
uh, her pain was had subsided so massively. Other thing I'll just mention too, I apologize if I sound a bit weary. It's just because I am. And I, although I did drink some coffee here at 11 o'clock at night, which you're not really supposed to do because I didn't want to be snoring into the microphone. Um, I think today was our 15th day in the hospital. Um, these days have without question, just all kind of blurred together. I mean, we've never imagined we were going to be here this long. So, uh, day in, day out of just spending eight, 10, 12 hours sitting in a hospital, uh, for me, which is the easy part. And for my wife, which is 24 hours a day. Um, yeah, that part's been really interesting, but, um, we're coming up here. We just we passed two weeks. I think it's going to be end of this week, maybe this weekend. Hopefully, I can bring her home. And that's because tomorrow uh, we're going to have the same exact surgery performed uh, to another region of her back because we have f- found, as a result of this first procedure a week ago and the massive pain reduction that has happened there, that has uncovered the pain that wasn't even being registered uh, elsewhere, uh, in her back. And so we have found another area where, although it was a little bit more sneaky, um, we have cancer there to go and kill and, uh, lots of stuff to fill and restore and get back in working order. So the, the scary part is we went from knowing whatever the exact timeline was, uh, somewhere between Barber and Long Beach and knowing that we the cancer had returned, uh, the breast cancer had returned, and we were going to have to fight this. And, you know, um, less than a month later, we find out that no. Uh, well, heck, as of a week ago, we thought we were now fighting it on two fronts. And we now know that we're actually fighting it on three fronts. So that part, I wish I could tell you something really nice and flowery. It's scary as hell. It's just, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you've got this bastard that you're dealing with and you're trying to fight and you find out that um, he's got two brothers and they're just as big and just as mean. So uh, luckily with your prayers, our prayers, uh, our overall resolve, everyone's well wishes some excellent doctors, some great plans. Uh, We are going to win. We are going to defeat this. This isn't just hollow, rah-rah talk. These things are going to happen. They're just not going to happen overnight. And so uh, I know a lot of you trying to uh, be supportive and helpful, you know, have said in some way, shape, or form, hope your wife is feeling better. And I, I wish we could just, give her some chicken soup and it would be that thing that just gets better like a flu that goes away. That's not what we're dealing with, unfortunately. So it's not a feeling better. It's a, you're fighting cancer on three fronts and you're going to get it. You're going to win. It's just going to be a really not fun and shitty uh, path to get there. And that's going to last months, uh, if not much longer. So, we're close to getting her home. After we get through the surgery, we'll see how long it takes for the pain to die down to a place that we can manage it at home instead of needing to be in the hospital with uh, stuff they would definitely not sell over the counter uh, type level of pain management. So 
once we get her pain management to a place that is uh, something we can handle at home, that's what we will do. It's going to make the two of us super, super happy because we're going stir crazy uh, being in a hospital. So I can only imagine those who are genuinely there for months, if not almost permanently. So uh, things are looking up. Road is definitely going to continue to be bumpy for a long time, and it's not always going to be fun. But once I can get her home, I know she's going to be so happy. Our cats, (laughs) Rocky and Rosie, for some of you who know that we have cats, uh, I wake up. Uh, Rocky just, you know, he actually is less interested in getting his food right away and he just wants to play and receive nothing but attention. His sister, Rosie, um, she kind of pretends I don't exist for a little while. And then she just runs in and jumps in my chair in the office and says, Nope, you can't sit down. Uh, you're going to give me your undivided attention for as long as I say. So they want mom to come home. Um, and then once I do actually get her home, then, you know, maybe our schedule will be a little bit more normal. It's going to be a lot of physical therapy to heal and get her back strong again. Uh, It's going to be radiation. It's going to be chemotherapy. It's going to be all the kind of known things in terms of cancer fighting. But we can do those things. And driving her to and from these appointments and whatnot, um, that's just going to be part of my new daily routine as well. And how cool that uh, this is something we can do instead of this being uh, far worse. So um, just trying to treat this like it is something that can not only be solved, but uh, just mention this, which I have thought about more than once. <clears throat> I am so thankful for the fact that I am a racer. I'm so thankful that since I was, I think, 16 years old, Uh, My life has been dedicated to racing, Uh, mechanic for many years, engineer after that, team manager after that, have owned my own team, run cars, endurance racing primarily, done a lot of spot, you know, contract work, fly in, run a whatever type team uh, for the weekend, some sort of pro racing thing, done a lot of fly in race engineering stuff. I'm so thankful that I've done all of those things, especially on the team management side, because I'll tell you, (laughs) uh, my wife and I don't have any family that's close. Uh, She has one brother that's about six hours away. Other than that, both my parents are gone. Her father's been gone for a long time. Her mother's in a a nursing facility. Just mention all this, that it's the two of us. Uh, We don't have a, a real, you know, significant support network anywhere nearby and so without my experience in racing i this would probably i'd be having i'd be in a mental hospital right now honestly just trying to get my brain to stop crashing but uh, i have treated this it may sound silly it may be silly but i have treated this like uh, a team manager someone who has a lot of very specific goals, a lot of specific tasks, organization, planning, looking at the desired outcome, working backwards. Uh, There's a little bit of race strategy involved here of knowing what we need my wife to have for these things to work out successfully, who the best players are to engage, how to interact with those players to either get the best from them or get from them the things that we need uh, to be comfortable with them. 
it is planning, it is logistics, it is ordering, it is scheduling, it is all the things that a, you name it, a, uh, a Tim Sindrick, a Mike Hull, a run on down the list of uh, all the folks in IndyCar who, granted, I'm nowhere near in their league, and that's said honestly, not just self-deprecating, but I'm very thankful that uh, I'm able to handle these things and manage a lot of stuff um, more or less solo, and that's all as a result of having invested my life in racing and having learned from a lot of amazing, amazing people who helped me to at least cherry-pick the finer points of how to do and handle a lot of stressful tasks in a short amount of time without letting the ship run aground. All right, let's get going with our man. I love this guy. Seriously, uh, I love this guy. Marcus Erickson, also following him, another one of someone who a couple years ago, I wouldn't have said this, but he has truly become one of my favorite people in the series, Takuma Sato. Then we'll close with Sean Lee, talking about some really interesting stuff from a new sponsor standpoint. Then your questions, and then farewell for the week. Marcus Erickson, thanks for making, I believe this is your second visit to the good old week in IndyCar. You know, when you have runs like you do on Sunday, when you get your first IndyCar podium, I mean, how could I not want to speak with you about that? How are you doing, first of all? Uh, What's it like coming out of a dual weekend, two races on the punishing streets of Detroit, and also having this pretty cool podium uh, of yours as some long overdue momentum? No, it, it feels great. And um, you said that if you have weekends like that, you're going to be on the show. So I'm hoping to be on the show for a lot of times this year then. So <laughs> looking forward to that. Uh, no, I, I forget, you know, it was, um, like you said, it was it was a bit like a, we, we were building up to that result during this first part of the year, I felt. And we, we have shown pace uh, throughout. I would say pretty much all of the races, but never really managed to get it together for a whole race for a whole weekend. So uh, that was why it was so nice to finally sort of get a, a great race, great strategy, great driving and sort of get it together. And, and to be fair, you know, Detroit was an amazing place. Uh, the track was, was very special, but I, I loved it. And, and double header, you know, the more racing, the better. So coming out of Indianapolis, I remember making a little note saying, Oh, I didn't realize that Marcus was effectively last in points among the full-time drivers. Then after Saturday's race at Detroit, I think I remembered making another note like, okay, hmm, and wondering, was there any sense of, is this bordering on a lost season for you? Uh, Were there any concerns about, oh boy, I know you didn't necessarily come into the year thinking I'm going to be champion first season out, but were there any concerns prior to getting on the podium and looking like you belonged there on Sunday that, wow, I wonder if the season's on the border of going not just bad, but staying bad? No, for sure. These thoughts sort of for sure comes up, especially when you have a tough run, like, like I had uh, result-wise, you know, but what was sort of giving me a bit of comfort was just the fact that, you know, like pretty much every weekend we had that pace to really be in the, 
I would say top six, top eight pace we've had on every weekend, but it's been for different reasons. We've sort of not got the result from it. But but even with that, you know, the results are what matters in them, you know, and and I also looked at the standings going into this weekend, seeing myself last uh, pretty much. So that was uh, was not a uh, happy reading. But, um, but yeah, like I said, I, I felt like, you know, and that was what I said to the team as well. I mean, we, we just need to keep keep doing what we're doing, keep working hard, and it's, it's going to come away sooner or later. And I was just really happy that it was <clears throat> sooner rather than later. Well, as I mentioned before we started recording, you have an insane amount of questions that have come in, which is great for a guy who's done eight IndyCar races. Like, you know, the volume of questions you've gotten would be of someone who's been in the series for five or ten years. So I think that's an indicator of how you, despite not having the results you've wanted, connecting with folks. So there's no way we're going to get to all of them, but it just means that hopefully when we have you on next time, who knows, go win Texas. We'll, we'll make it happen for sure in a week. Um, we can get to some more of these. Let's start off with, and I love some of the names people come up with on social media, Kingmaker, big if, exclamation point, brackets true on Twitter. says, Marcus, what was the reaction of the, uh, the Alfa Romeo Formula One team that came to see you in Detroit after your result? And for those who don't know, and this speaks a lot about you, you had the crew that you'd worked with for years in Formula One, and I know you're still their reserve and test driver, but you had them come out early to watch you race at Detroit ahead of this weekend's Canadian Grand Prix. What was their reaction after your performance and what they saw in IndyCar? Yeah, I want to first just go back to what you said before the question and, and just come back to that, that, you know, you said there's a lot of questions for me, and, and I just wanted to sort of say that that it's been it's been a great experience for me so far here in America with all the fans you know and the connection with the fans and uh, like I said I've only done eight races but I've really got a good connection and and, and really feel su- support here so I really really appreciate that and was glad to hear that there were so many questions for me uh, then coming back to the question it was uh, it was super cool to, to see it was yeah 10 of the 10 of the people in, in Sauber F1 team that I've worked with for some of them were all my four years when I was there. Uh, so they were there uh, flying out early to, to watch me race. And uh, and obviously they were super excited on, on Sunday. You know, they were there at the podium celebrations. And uh, yeah, I think I think they, they left uh, Detroit having a very, very great uh, experience and lots of great things to say about IndyCar as well because, you know, the race we put on on Sunday... Uh, regardless of my results, was uh, was a great show. I think for for the fans and everyone that watched it, and and they they surely loved the experience there. And I think uh, uh, yeah, it was cool to share it with them. Ryan Terpstra asks. He says, "I know you're still in touch with the Formula One paddock, and I don't know if this is either a Formula One driver or some of the other people, but he asks." What's the one thing you maybe share with them when they ask you about racing here in America and maybe your first oval experience or just IndyCar in general? Is there one thing when folks ask you say, this is a thing that stands out? I think the, the first thing I say is the, the competition, you know, like yeah, the whole field is covered by a second pretty much everywhere. And, and to be on top of that, it's like, it's so tough. And, and that's the thing that Formula One misses a bit that, you know, you, you have sort of, couple of teams at best fighting with each other and it's all in different brackets there and especially from the top to the sort of midfield teams and I think that's the big difference I, I feel in IndyCar that you know 
you have that competition from P1 to P24, pretty much. So, so that's something I, I always mention. And then, of course, uh, the complexity of the series with the different tracks. You know, you have the road courses, the street courses, and the ovals. And it really requires different types of driving styles for all them three types of tracks. And that means to be successful in this series, you need to be such a complete driver. Mm. And that's something I think uh, it's very difficult. And it shows also that guys like Scott Dixon and Will Power, Alexander Rossi, all these guys running up front, uh, how, how good of uh, drivers they are and how sort of complete uh, of drivers they are. Let's see. Darren Wicken asks, Marcus, is there anything from your time in Formula One that you prefer and might suggest to, say, IndyCar president Jay Fry, they might consider adopting, whether it's standing starts, uh, the the knockout qualifying format, although we do have a, a version of that here with the Firestone Fast 12 and Fast 6. But Darren's curious if there's anything from Formula 1 you might say, hmm, IndyCar, maybe consider this for the future. Uh, Other than maybe driver I, salaries. I mean, I, <laughs> exactly. No, but I, I, I mean, I, I've loved my time here so far. I mean, the car, I think, is a amazing series. Uh, I think standing stars. Obviously, we saw the pit stop competition. I, I might have had a bit of upper hand there on my competition with the standing stars <laughs> there. So I wouldn't mind, you know, doing a couple of them in, in the races. But, but with that said, though, I, I think that the rolling stars is something I've really. Fun. It's a fun, fun thing, and I had to sort of learn it. I think the last time I did Rolling Stars was like in go karts, but uh, so I think it's fun with that. You know, it's quite different to the standing starts. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure if I wanted to change that. I think that the only thing that I think would be cool, uh, which I can sort of think of now, uh, getting the question, is that uh, if we could do some races abroad, you know, like that's a cool thing with F1. We they go all over the world. Racing and obviously IndyCar is an American series, but I think a couple of races outside of America uh, would be great for the series and also fun for for, for teams and drivers. But uh, I know there's been some talk about that going because it's been obviously in the past. But I think that would be something for you know the series at the moment is so much on the up. Uh, I speak to people in Europe and everyone is talking about you know that IndyCar is really. Uh, you know, gaining, gaining momentum all over the world, you know, with interest and, and the way the series is, is moving in the right direction. And I think to make that even stronger worldwide, uh, a few races uh, outside of America would also help that, I think. So this is just a wacky little number that doesn't mean anything, but I just find it interesting with your joining the series this year with uh, our man Felix Rosenquist joining as well with, with two high-quality Swedish drivers, I know that just looking at the global map of where folks listen to my podcast, Sweden, no joke, has jumped up from effectively nowhere on the list to number five, uh, not too far behind Australia. And if you consider you know, the longstanding representation of Will Power in the series, Scott Dixon, I know he's a Kiwi, but just in general, really interesting to see that I think maybe by mid to late summer, Sweden will probably move to number four right behind Canada uh, on my list of where folks are tuning in and listening to uh, this podcast every week. And that's clearly because of two of you. So maybe that's my way of saying, maybe we need a really good Swedish street race for IndyCar. So, Let's go yeah, ahead. I would be up for that. <laughs> uh, again, uh, no, but 
I think it's really cool. I mean, it's, it's like you say, I, I know I have a great following from Sweden and so does uh, Felix. So when both of us, uh, you know, signed for, for IndyCar, I think that was, it was very big news in Sweden. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, with all the fans that was following me in Formula One, you know, were they going to stop following me now? Were they going to, you know, what was going to happen? But I'm, I'm glad to say that it feels like every one of them uh, is following me in IndyCar and, and supporting me now more than ever, you know, and then for sure that's, uh, uh, it's a great thing, and, and and even on the races, you know, I see Swedish fans uh, coming to the races with Swedish flags. Last time now in Detroit, you know, there were a, a group of Swedish fans there that waited after I had all my media off my podium, and then when I got back to the to, to the trailer, you know, when the team was packing up and almost finished, like uh, two three hours after the race was finished, they were still there with the Swedish flag wow. waiting for me to sort of congratulates me on the on the podium so uh, we, we do have great support from from back home and myself and Felix really really appreciate that that's pretty awesome let's go to Tony Richards great question he says after showing what you could do coming back to a track in IndyCar for the second time referring to getting to race again on Sunday at Belle Isle he says does that bode well for Texas since you have at least a test there under your belt so Circuit familiarity as a rookie learning all these circuits, do you think either coming back to race again Sunday or even just getting a chance to have lapped and testing at Texas might help you? I really do think so. Uh, I think that was interesting in Detroit that like I really felt that on day two uh, or on Sunday there, that I really had sort of upper hand compared to the day before just because that track knowledge I gained up until that point. And, you know, my qualifying lap during the end, I did a mistake on the last part of the lap that I lost a lot of time on. Without that mistake, I think I would have qualified P2 or P3, P3 in my group. So, you know, already in qualifying on Sunday, I was really right there. And then obviously we had the race we had. So for me, that was interesting. And when I sort of analyzed that after the weekend, I think the fact that I had that track knowledge uh, from early in the weekend really helped me to have a strong Sunday. And... I mean, that's what, I, that's what I'm that's what i saying to Sam and Rick now as well, you know, saying, look what I could do when I knew the track. So, you know, <laughs> uh, let's let's try and get a contract for next year. <laughs> yes, we're going to... Imagine what I can do that on all the, on all the tracks I have, uh, I have uh, track knowledge of. So, you know, uh, but yeah, like, coming back to the question, you know, Texas, like I said, I did the test there in, in April, my first ever oval test. I was, uh, first off of the day, I was completely lost and hardly... You know, was brave enough to turn the wheel in the corners. It was, it was a very different experience. But yeah, I sort of got there in the end of the day on that test and felt comfortable in the end of the day. But obviously, my experience in the Indy 500 and the whole month of May helped me gain tons of confidence running on an oval and, and all that times types of stuff. Uh, I'm still a beginner. I'm still learning a lot, and I appreciate the Texas is a very different type of oval to to Indy. But I go there with uh, with high confidence from from yeah my experience in the month of May and obviously from the Detroit race and obviously with uh, with the track knowledge as well from the test so uh, I'm hoping and thinking we can be can be stronger. You mentioned something I was curious about, and I don't know the length of your contracts and all that stuff. I don't know all the personal stuff there, but can you share some thoughts, Marcus, on what the timing or mechanism might be for you to decide? now you know approximately half a season into your first indycar uh, endeavor whether you want to return next year 
if that's something you start negotiating now, is the team open to it? Again, I, I don't know what you can or can't share, but for every driver coming to IndyCar for the first time, there's usually some trigger point where you say, okay, I want to come back. I want to do this for the second year or five years or whatever it is. Just curious where you're the, where you're at with that and uh, when this, you know, decisions may or may not happen. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I have a one-year contract and uh, when I came here, you know, I, I had no idea. You know, I, I just thought the, the series from the outside looked very, very interesting and something I wanted to do and I was pushing very hard to sort of get the chance to, to drive it in the car, but obviously you don't know how it is until you sort of experience it. And I think, you know, even though I had a tough run result-wise until, you know, Detroit, like I said before, I, I really enjoyed it so much here and, and had such a good time. And uh, especially after Indy and the experience in Indy, uh, the month of May was something I've never experienced before. I, I just loved that so much. And, you know, I've, I've already told my management, you know, that I, I really want to stay and, and, I want them to push everything to, to stay in the series for next year and, and, and beyond if possible. You know, I, I really having a great time. And that's also what I've said to, to sort of uh, Sam and Rick and the rest of the ROSPM team, you know, that I would be very, very keen and interested to, to stay on, you know. But obviously, to be able to do that, I need to do results. And that second place uh, in Detroit was definitely helping my case. And, and hopefully, you know, with some more results like that, you know, I I can convince people that I should um, should stay in the series uh, because, like like I said, I've really had a great time so far and would love to see what I could do with uh, with a year under my belt, you know, and um, with that experience and all the tracks that uh, I would gain this year. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention on a totally unrelated topic. Uh, just out of boredom yesterday i was poking around and, and found your website and noticed that you have some merchandise for sale and i was some hats and t-shirts and i was just blown away at how much of a raging ego you have because on the hats and t-shirts they say me and i'm like gosh what is wrong with this guy i mean all he wants to do sorry i couldn't resist there anyways i thought of uh talladega nights where we had ricky bobby with me as yeah, a sponsor yeah. on his car <laughs> granted you're fortunate with the initials for your name but i'm just saying if you want to have some fun me would be a hell of a good sponsor at some point in time all right thank you for exactly, indulging yeah. my i appreciate you indulging my stupidity all right so that was the that was it for twitter questions we have a buttload of facebook questions and many of them are awesome so let me try and get through again as many as we can in the time that we have uh, let's see. Why don't we go to let's go to Jim Johnstone. And he says, Marcus, did this podium at Detroit reignite any of your passion uh, for racing to an even higher level uh, after racing in Formula One? And I guess it's an interesting angle because it's not as if you lack passion for racing. If so, you wouldn't be driving anymore. But just curious how standing on a podium I don't know if it triggers something inside of you or if and what it does, but, you know, you're the guy who said it's been a long, you know, it's been since my GP2 days. Just curious how you receive the, the feelings of being on a podium and if that does actually elevate anything for you going forward. I think it does. I mean, it was, like like you said, you know, it's been such a long time since I was uh, standing on a podium. I mean, it was the end of 2013. That's... <laughs> Don't even remember, you know, almost the, that feeling, and and 
and to be back there on the podium, it was uh, was very emotional, and, and, and you know, I was so happy, and, and I missed that feeling so much. Uh, obviously, I want to win, you know, that's that's what we want to do, but but still, you know, a podium and that feeling on the podium was was amazing, and it really does sort of uh, give you even more motivation to to keep working hard, to keep you know doing everything you can to sort of be up there on the podium as much as possible. So that's definitely something I've missed a lot uh, in F1, where you sort of, with the cars I was running there, I never had a realistic sense of, of standing on a podium. So um, that's that's something I felt all year, you know, that you have that chance to, to finish on the podium and score wins. It's something that that sort of uh, motivation that gives is something I've missed a lot um, the last uh, years. And, uh, again, that's one of the great things with uh, within the car, and I definitely got a good taste of it uh, in Detroit. So I, I want more of that. Eric Hermes asks a question. It's a version of something we've touched on, but would love to hear your thoughts on the differences. He says, "How do you feel about the access for fans in IndyCar and their ability to so easily interact with you compared to maybe your previous experience in Formula One?" And I've I've never covered Formula One, so I can't speak to this. But I know the the reputation is that fans are heavily controlled. Uh, the the times that you and other drivers were allowed to interact with them was highly managed. What's it like having folks just standing right out in front of your transporter, uh, you know, twenty feet away from you at all times? Do you like that? Is is it something that you maybe wished Formula One had had made possible for you? I think it's uh, it's great. The the fan interaction that we're having in the car is is definitely very very different to, to Formula One, and um, and I think you, you can see on on the fans that they really appreciate that connection and and that sort of uh, accessibility to the drivers. Um, for sure, sometimes it can be uh, a little bit tough because you might be stressed out. You have meetings, media, and whatever things you have, you know and Sometimes it's a bit tricky to even get to the to the restroom because you know you always have a lot of fans outside the trailer and and you don't want to you know always when I see the fans there you know I I want to stop and sign autographs or take pictures and all that you know I, I I'm that kind of guy that, that I would always do that and and then you know and you have to sometimes plan your sort of toilet breaks before and after <laughs> sessions uh, which you know we didn't have that problem in F1 but. That's a nice problem to have, and you know, without the fans, we are nothing. So I think that's one of the one, one great thing with IndyCar, you know. And, and like I said, I really feel like all the fans do appreciate it a lot. I'll tell you, and I don't know if you got a chance to see the footage of this when it happened live or afterwards, but on the subject, one of the most amazing things I have seen performed by any race car driver was Bump Day at Indy when Fernando Alonso was indeed bumped from the field, he's walking back to go back to the garage and fans, I guess, recognizing that they see the famous, amazing Fernando Alonso are asking him for autographs, uh, reaching through the fence. I don't know if those fans failed to realize he was 30 seconds into his worst 
day of his career but the first reaction was not hey fernando go get him come on back we can't wait to see you next year but fernando would you sign my model would you sign this photo and instead of telling the world which is what i would have done if i was in his shoes go f yourself why are you kidding me the guy stops and signs autographs again a minute after his his racing nightmare has just taken place that just said so much to me about not only fan access but the ability for someone even in the middle of something dreadful like that for him as a professional athlete to say you know what if you're asking i'll take a moment and sign uh, that just blew me away yeah no that's a great thing and it's great to hear that Fernando did that you know that's uh yeah, like you said, it's a, I can't imagine how difficult that moment was, so that's, that's great to hear. Yeah. Let's go to Brett Ross, who asks, how has Kenny Brack helped your career, and has he given you any advice about IndyCar and the Indy 500? Uh, so, so Kenny was actually one of the biggest uh, reasons why I could take the step from go-karts to, to race cars when I was uh, 15, 16 years old. I was... Uh, doing well in go-karts, but didn't have the, the sort of uh, family or connections to take the next step and start driving cars. So, uh, yeah, for, for me, my family, that was not a possibility, you know, on the economy side and, and all that. So uh, I was very lucky that Kenny at that time decided to start up a project to try and help um, some someone, a, a young couple of racing drivers in Sweden to try and help them with sponsorship and then management. And basically, uh, Kenny Breck and, and AOG um, was the two that run the program. And they picked me and a few other guys, who I think there were 10 of us, or 8 or 10 of us, that they picked uh, out of the most successful go-kart uh, drivers in that age and sort of did an evaluation test, all different kinds of tests with us. And uh, in the end... Um, they they picked me as the one they wanted to support and help and uh, and from then on you know Kenny was working with me pretty much uh, every day since I was fifteen until I was I think around twenty one and then we we had um, some disagreements about some things and we went our separate ways as uh, sometimes happens uh, no bad feelings and. Uh, and uh, we, yeah, we, we don't we don't stay in touch at the moment. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm sure he's following what I'm what I'm doing here in America. He's still, you know, uh, great inspiration. What he did here, and and you know, I remember when I was a kid, I was watching him on the TV when he was racing here in IndyCar, and you know what he did here, how successful he was. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, coming back, you know, without his help. Uh, I would not have been in, in car racing at all, you know, so I would have been stuck in go-karts. So I have a lot to thank uh, Kenny for and what he's done for my career. You know, sticking with that in terms of developing young Swedish drivers, we have a bit of a unicorn on the uh, the road to Indy, that being a ginger Swede in Rasmus Lind. Uh, curious, knowing that, and he's done well this year, obviously, uh, you know, being able to win so far, but Curious, uh, looking at him in the Indy Pro 2000 series, if seeing a young countryman coming up, you know, 10 plus years ago where you were in your career, if you've had a chance to connect with him or, or just be any kind of support or a source of advice for him as he's trying to get, frankly, get to IndyCar where you are. 
Yeah, I know actually Rasmus for a few years. We had some uh, some common sponsors, uh, a company called Hello Sweden from back home. So so we we've done usually we do once or twice a year we do some events together. Uh, so so I I know Rasmus a fair bit. I remember him a couple of years ago. He was like the smallest, shyest little guy, and mm-hmm. now he's. Uh, it's all tall and uh, speaking, and you know it's it's funny how 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 quickly it's grown up. And I'm closely following how he's doing. He's like you said, I he's been very impressive this year, and um, hopefully he can continue that and continue his road, you know, to towards IndyCar. Um, you know, it's no question about his talent. Uh, obviously, uh, you, you need to also work extremely hard, and and, and you know, so many more things uh, that you need to be getting all the way to IndyCar and all the way to the top of motorsport, but for sure he has the talent for it. So uh, I was always closely. I met him uh, last time out in the, around the Indy 500 there in the month of May and was chatting with him as well. So, yeah, I, I wish him all the best. And, you know, so far it's been very impressive this year. He's got, uh, he's got Stefan Johansson looking after him, which is uh, not a bad thing at all. So hopefully that all leads to uh, something very positive. Let's go to, let's see, where should we go next? Let's go to Charles Knight, who says, Marcus, what has been the biggest non-racing or car-related surprise uh, in your time so far in IndyCar? So I guess outside the cockpit, what's been your biggest surprise? Well, it's a difficult question, I think. I think, you know, you start that atmosphere and, and feeling uh, at the race weekend, I feel it's very sort of family friendly, open atmosphere in the paddock, which I feel it's been it's been very nice. The, all the teams seem to be, you know, uh, having great respect for each other, and, and all the drivers is uh, it's a great sort of uh, respect there uh, towards each other, and, and also with all the fans that are interacting. I think just that makes the whole sort of experience uh, over a race weekend that, you know, we're all there to to do the best job we can and be successful, but we also are there and having a good time together with our teams and together with sponsors, but also together with the fans. And I think that's been one of the sort of apart from driving and all that, you know, being new there, I think that sort of experience and uh, yeah, it's been something uh, different and but in, in a very good, good way. Just had a little bit of, of quote breaking news come through while we're talking here with Carlin Racing announcing that Connor Daly will be driving for them at Texas, and that would be that is awesome. yeah, and that would be in Max Chilton's entry and Max oh, wow. and that yeah, and so I, I wanted to get your thought on this because uh, this is something I thought it was going to be in Pat's car. Yeah, so this is something. I don't remember if we wrote about it, whether I wrote about it or Robin did, or if I know I mentioned it on the podcast uh, late last year, but was hearing quote rumors out of, uh, out of the UK that Max might not want to step away from IndyCar, but might want to take the path that say Mike Conway did uh, in that stepping back from oval saying, Hey, love IndyCar still want to do it, but there's something about the ovals that I don't like anymore. Maybe it's a uh, concern over injury or otherwise. I'd say fear of injury, but 
every race car driver competing at 230 miles an hour on an oval. If you don't have a healthy fear of injury, then you're probably not going to survive. But had heard rumor, very strong rumor late last year that Max was considering coming back for only the road and street courses going forward and wouldn't have blamed him if he chose to do that. This is what they are just announcing, actually. Uh, Max saying that he will not be competing in the remaining four oval races starting this weekend. You're th- curious to get your thoughts on this, Marcus, as someone who I realize with all of one oval race to your credit as an IndyCar driver. Um, just curious if you can share any thoughts on this or, or if you can maybe understand uh, the mindset of a European driver like Max on a similar path like you coming here from Formula One. Ovals are the only truly weird and unique thing you hadn't done before. If you can understand how someone after a couple of years of doing them might say, eh, maybe I'll just stick to the thing uh, I have done for the majority of my career, not this wacky American thing. Or are you like, hey, these ovals are amazing. I'm never going to leave. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I I didn't know about this. Like I said, I, I spoke, I speak a bit with Max, and I didn't didn't know about him taking this decision. And yeah, I mean, I like everyone. You have to respect respect it. I think for me, um, I'm so new to it. I didn't know at all how I was gonna experience it, uh, and you know how how it was gonna feel. It's obviously something very different to anything I've done before. And yeah, I was. I wasn't sure, like I said, how, how I was going to find that experience. But I have to say, for me, it's been only positive. I've, I've had a, you know, I had a great month of May. I thought it was so exciting to be out there driving on the oval. Um, very cool type of racing. Um, you know, that adrenaline you get from it uh, was something I, I, I loved. So, you know, so far, I, I really, really enjoy it. And I, I, I can't wait to get to Texas, to be fair. Um, but, uh, but like I said, you know, I think everyone has different experiences from it and then, you know, you, you have to respect that. So, uh, yeah, that's my, my, my take on it. I'm glad though for, for Connor, I, I spoke to Connor this weekend and he said that he had something, you know, something going and he was, you know, maybe going to be in Texas and, and, you know, I was very happy to hear that. He, he didn't tell me more than that, more details than that, but, uh, that's what he told me, and then you know, and so, so I'm super happy that Connor gets that chance. You know, he's one of the the good guys, hard worker, and then I think he did a tremendously good job in uh, in the Indy 500 the whole month of May. So that would be cool to see him out there. Yeah, well, let's just be thankful. The thing he wasn't telling you is that he was going to be driving the number seven Aero Schmidt Peterson Motorsports <laughs> Honda. Uh, <laughs> that wouldn't I, have been too that's much. What I said, like, that was was I like I said to him, like. Don't don't tell me this, and then like reading the news in a couple of days, I'm fired, and you take my seat. Then I'm gonna kick your ass, man. I love it. Yeah, that was that was good news, then. (laughs) I love it. Well, let let's wind down with a question or two here, uh, one or two more. Dean Ackerman sends us in, and uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to watch the uh, Netflix documentary uh, Formula One Drive to Survive uh, about the 2018 season. A, it's been awesome. It's truly been amazing to watch you uh were someone who was you know featured in it and i think you know uh, dean says your personality really came through in the interviews that you did in the documentary but if you've had a chance to see the documentary he's just curious to get your thoughts on it and uh how you think that you know 
uh, whether you think something like that for IndyCar might do value to bring more of our series to uh, global prominence. I, I think, you know, when this first started to talk about that a couple of years ago, I wasn't sure, you know, is that going to work out? You know, there was a lot of questions mark around it. But when they decided to go for it and stopped us for, for time, you know, from from our schedule to try and do it, I was very keen to try and help them as much as possible. And and I have to say, you know, I, I watched the series when it came out and, you know, the, the end result was uh, was amazing, I thought. I thought. I thought it was a very good uh, series. I think that uh, uh, it really goes behind the scenes and shows, uh, shows Formula One and, and racing from another perspective. And I've heard so many positive things from from non motorsport fans. You know, I think that's the, the the cool thing as well. I think it's created a lot of racing fans uh, from that series that you know wasn't maybe racing fans before, or maybe just sort of yeah, it's racing, it's alright, you know. But then people have watched that series and really got hooked on Formula One and racing, and and that's I think was was something that was very cool with it that the way they did it and you know captured everything behind the scenes. You got to see the personalities, not only the, you know, interviews before and after every race, but you really got to see the personalities behind, you know, and, and I think that was something very good for for the sport. And then, yeah, the, the end result was great. So I think, you know, for, for IndyCar to do something similar would be a very good thing. Obviously, Netflix goes out to so many people, so I think that was a great platform for them to do it. So I think, you know, IndyCar... Definitely has the opportunity there. I would do even like something like a, a short series around the Indy 500 because that's such a unique, that whole month, you know, I think you can really do something really cool around that. You know, like a, imagine like a, I don't know, a mini documentary series or a documentary series about the Indy 500 following behind the scenes, the different drivers, different teams, all the drama that goes around it with qualifying practice. The build up to the race, everything that goes on before the race, parade, the race day. You know, I think that there is a lot of interesting angles there that they can really build something around, and, and that will for sure expand the fan base. And that's you know things you, you have to look at for for racing at the moment. You know, there is a lot of competition these days um, with people's times, what they want to do, and you know what people want to do at their free time, and 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 we always have to think about different ways to. To you know, keep the fans we have, but also get get new fans. How about a five part documentary titled "What the Hell Is Wrong with James Hinchcliffe"? I think I think the world <laughs> that would just be good for humanity if we can figure out what is wrong with that boy. Um, well, I would say all kidding aside, somewhat kidding aside, that actually leads to uh, a question here as we ramp down uh, from one of our guests, and I apologize, I've blown, oh, from Brett Ross again. He says, "How has?" the mayor of Hinchtown helped you as a teammate and has he pulled any pranks on you yet? Uh, first of all, you know, he's helped me a ton, you know, like he's been a perfect teammate for me. Uh, obviously it's been a lot of new things uh, to, to learn, uh, not only uh, racing wise, but also like just moving to America. He's obviously living in Indianapolis as well. So that's been great and, and he's been super nice and, and helpful. You know, it's, you know, people uh, see how he is as a person. And I think he, he really is that nice person that you get the, the picture of him being, you know, 
And and on the racing side, you know, he's an experienced guy that is a very strong driver on all types of circuits and then types of you know ovals, street courses, road courses. He has a, he's a very complete driver, so he's been helping me a lot there as well. Uh, I would say especially on the ovals, you know, he was there for my first test in Texas coaching me all the way through that and, you know, helping me all day. And then also, you know, the month of, during the month of May, I was, uh, you know, trying to pick up things from him all the time. So that's been really good. And also on, on a personal side, you know, we've, we've developed a really cool uh, friendship and, you know, we hang out between races as well. And, and you know, I think we push each other uh, in a very healthy way and, and that helps the team forward as well. So, yeah, I only have good things to say about it. I hope we can can continue to, you know, work hard to get the OSPM up the up the grid as well. I was hoping you were just going to murder him. You know, he's constantly walking around naked in the transporter, and you know, maybe that's a rumor we need to start. Uh, you've actually filed a protest with IndyCar to get your teammate to wear clothes uh, when he's not driving a race car. All right, uh, let's see. You know, here's here's one. And I know you've been asked. I think we might have even covered this in your first visit where uh, Jeff Greendick has asked you to compare the difference in feel between what an F1 car wants and an Indy car wants to be quick. Uh, and then someone, Daniel Kincaid, added a good modifier that's new that I'd love to get your thoughts on. He says, I'm curious, uh, Marcus, if you could compare the, the difference in feeling between, say, tire dag with Firestone Reds versus some of the softer Pirelli tires in F1. Uh, and again, in IndyCar, you've got two slicks to choose from, primary and alternate. In F1, I believe there's 432 options to choose from. But <laughs> can you just share some thoughts on, on tire deck between reds and, and whatever, I guess, the comparable shade would be in F1? Yeah, I think on the tire side, I think the Firestone is a bit more of a sort of a solid tire, I would say a bit less sensitive, a bit of a bigger working window, which I think is, is, is good for the racing. Uh, the, the experience I had with the Pirelli tires is they are very temperature sensitive and have a very small working window. Um, so that was very difficult with the Pirelli tires. Uh, so there I would say the Firestone is, is feeling like it has a bit of a yeah, wider working range, which helps, I think, for racing. Because when you are racing people, you have to be able to overstress the tires a bit to sort of line someone up. And I think with the Firestones, that the way they are built, that, that helps that. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of dig, apart from the red weekend in Detroit, because they were falling off like crazy. Yeah. Uh, which I didn't really experience, because I bought some left too, but we obviously saw... Scott and, and Spencer, they're really hitting a cliff. Um, so I, I don't know if it was something with the compound this weekend or at this track, but prior to that, I would say that the tires are quite consistent as well throughout uh, a run and it doesn't degrade as, as, as much as maybe the softer Pirelli uh, compounds uh, do in Formula 1. So I think that's been one of the challenges for me, to be fair, this year as well, to sort of get used to that different feel i think uh, you know the 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 Pirelli and firestone has a different character and, and obviously the firestone we don't use the tire warmers where we do in formula one here you have the tire warmers so always when you get out of the pit they are up the temperature and here you have to sort of build the temperature uh, and that's been something i've been struggling to sort of find the best way to do that so I feel comfortable and confident when I start my qualifying laps on the red Firestones and that's been sort of my biggest uh, 
struggle so far this year, I would say. Uh, but I'm finding my way there all the time, and I think I really feel like I've made some really big steps there. Uh, first in Indy GT, where I qualified in the top 10, and then, you know, this past weekend in Detroit, where we were on for a really good qualifying uh, until I made that mistake on the end of the lap. So there's different, definitely differences between the two tires, and it's just different types of tires, you know, uh, that you have to work with. Well, that kind of covers off uh, one of the last two questions I had from Bobby Bruni, who had asked about what might have been some of the hardest or the hardest aspect uh, adaptation-wise with IndyCar. Well, let's go to our final question, and this maybe will get answered in two weeks' time or so when IndyCar heads to Road America. I'm guessing, Marcus, already you've had fans just telling you how much uh, you will probably enjoy the amazing road course there in Wisconsin. It's also known, and I believe there's also, it's actually Michelin star rated, uh, the, the eating options there. Uh, in one place in particular. So Ralph Hibbard, hey, Ralph, and thanks for sending those press kits to me. He says, Marcus, has anyone told you about the double bratwurst sandwich at Road America? I believe no. Um, But it sounds good. Well, sounds interesting. Well, (laughs) yes. So one of two things, either have that Thursday first thing when you arrive or after the race Sunday, just make sure it's cleared your system because it's either going to put right. you to sleep okay, for about, that. you're going to go to sleep for about 12 hours after. You're going to smile, and then your body is going to explode. It will be a delight. But, yeah, I mean, you're a very fit guy and whatnot. That's part of what I feel bad because we go to some tracks where, I guess, if you have uh, fewer inhibitions like me, you become a fat bastard. But there are some tracks we go to where the eating is just damn fine. It's not, you know, culinary delights. It's not French cuisine. But, yeah, you can get you can become a big, fat, sloppy American if you're not careful based on some of the awesome food. So um, not sure how you balance that, but I hope you at least part of your rookie no, journey. Let's, let's see. Yeah, let's see Sunday, Sunday night then. We can celebrate with that on after a great result, you know, that could be something. All right, so that is the official call for our uh, Week in IndyCar listeners who will be at Elkhart Lake. Uh, I don't know. I, no, I don't think I'm going to be there, unfortunately. But uh, someone needs to make sure you have a double brat waiting for Marcus after the race at the transporter. And if we got enough, you might have like 10 of them. So maybe your entire number seven crew will have some double exactly. brats. We can all enjoy it. Yeah, that would be, that would be something. Marcus, Let's make it happen. <laughs> you're uh, you're a lot of fun, man. I'm so glad you're here. I love that you want to stay, and, and even more, I just love based on again just the volume of questions that we get for you. It's really clear that folks are enjoying you here, and so when you have success like you did, really kind of a breakthrough on Sunday to confirm, hey, this is the right call. Not only can I do this, but I can run up front as well. Happy for where you're at, and uh, just continued wishes of success for the rest of the year. Takuma, very impressive weekend at Detroit, which followed a very impressive weekend at Indianapolis, which followed a very impressive weekend at dot, dot, dot. Uh, One of the cool things that, at least for me, just observing, it looks like from the outside, you at 42 years old are driving uh, better, faster, with more consistency than I can maybe ever recall seeing in IndyCar at least. Are you feeling any of those things? Are you you feeling any of that as well? 
Well, I mean, well, first of all, thank you very much for the uh, complimental, you know, the uh, the great comment. Um, well, I mean, I feel same way too that as um, most of the athletes um, feels um, obviously improving every time, even you get to the um, uh, you know good experience and um, you even you been called by veterans from the others that you know the athlete is always feeling you know just just uh, try to finding extra you know the things that you can add to yourself and improving and that's my case too that yes 42 years old physically not young anymore you know the recovery speed is definitely go down and you know the flexibility definitely go down etc etc but um with overall package with experience and i feel you know uh, i feel better Yes, it's more consistent, more experienced, more relaxed, and um, you know, hopefully, it's 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 producing a better result. I, I think that is the case. Now, of course, in motor racing, it's always difficult to judge a, a pure driver because it's a, it's a really related with the team and the environmental things. But um, I feel more confident and certainly more comfortable in the team, and that's probably. Um, it's it's working together. So hopefully, I can I can still improving in some area. It also seems like with a second year, getting to know and work with Eddie Jones directly last year, for example, it seems like coming out of twenty eighteen, the two of you have come into this new season just really locked together, really making you know really good decisions on setup changes and whatnot. How has that relationship gone from your standpoint? And do you think this year two of working together has really been you know, a big part of how well the season's gone so far? Yeah, I mean it's been a, it's been a, a tremendous uh, relationship with him, and you know having a fun time together. And we obviously, obviously, in racing, it, 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 it's a, it's a tough time. It, it, it things you know don't going well as we wished, of course. But you know we all know and. Um, as, as Eddie was a race car driver in past, um, he knows what it takes and what is about in, in the business in the cockpit, which is extremely important uh, for me to understand at the same level. And plus, obviously, Eddie is, uh, is a great experience and great uh, engineer in, 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 obviously, needless to say, in general terms. So, uh, you know, there is no reason why we, we're not going well together. Now, of course, when I joined Rayhole last year, 2018, you know, team has a high expectation. So do I and driver, of course. But we just, um, I didn't have a, a, a good, um, a competitive speed at the beginning of the season, and and uh, including all the new boys. You know, the, obviously Ray Hall has been established for the single car team, and uh, you know, I think I think uh, this team supplies for everyone in the paddock in the last few years as a single car team is always top of the Honda. You know, team. And I was uh, that was very impressive. Now, of course, with that, you know, expanding for two cars, 2018. You know, recruiting a lot of new guys, and I think the team did a great job. But then, with this competition, highest competition level, it takes a time to 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 bed in and and uh, works together. I think that it was the case last year. You know, you can see second half of the season, we're definitely hooking a better speed and better. Com- you know, competition, and that's just a continuous of working for this year. So, being being 
you know, one and a half year now together with Eddie and with the team. And secondly, certainly more comfortable, as I said, and uh, things are working better. And you can see from the results from outside for sure. Let me ask one final question before we move on to uh, your fan questions. Graham, your teammate Graham Rahal, obviously has not had the start to the year that he wants. Hasn't been horrible by any means. I mean, he's still in a mm-hmm. uh, a strong position in the points or, you know, not even we're just getting to the halfway point. But yeah, I don't I can't think of too many situations in IndyCar, at least where you have really been the person consistently running up front for the team, having won a race already this year. You've been on the podium three times already. Are you comfortable knowing that Graham obviously wants to be leading the championship, <laughs> but are you comfortable kind of being the team's, well, you know, I, best I, shot right I, now? How does that work? Uh, I, I mean, you know, it's just a, just to come back to the, uh, just the pure athlete point of view, pure a racing driver's point of view. I mean, I'm comfortable, of course, that, um, you know, not, not just leading the team. That's, that's not the point, to be honest. Um, well, you're the nicest walk- guy in the paddock, which is why I ask. So I know, you, uh, okay. you know, but <laughs> this pushes into the athlete, though, a little bit. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. The things that I, I'm particularly pleased with was that it's just his professional rhythm. And as a teammate, you know, the teammate is, is, is often, obviously, you know, not often, all the time, obviously, working together. You know, completely working together, but at the same time, it's the nearest arrival, isn't it? Because you have sort of the same equipment, same environment, and then the only judgment is that uh, from outside is just you know to, to 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 see the teammates together. I don't disagree with that one. You know, some of the cases is not true, but it is mostly true. So so the you know it's not it's not just the beat or beaten i mean but working together with Graham is such a pleasure because you know he he's so honest guy and and like uh, like this morning we did a, a usual uh, conference call with the team and um you know he was uh, he was obviously disappointed for the weekend but then uh, his his comment um is is always really straight you know straight guy so um you know i i like him a lot and um competition level in the team is is obviously high so he pushed me and i pushed him and and, and unfortunately he he had uh, too many unfortunate situations so perhaps on on, on a piece of the paper as a, as a result maybe not that he wanted but he showed the uh, he showed obviously the great speed and um you know i mean i i had a better season so far now but it's still it's only it's only one third of the season done. So we'll see how how it's hooking up and and and, and both of us for the rest of the season. But the, my goal is obviously working together and build the uh, uh, the next level, you know, lifting of next level for the team. And that's exactly what Graham wants to. For the personal level, of course he wants to beat me, and of course he wants to be the win in the winning in the races, and and so do I. So it is healthy competition is happening in a team. And at the moment, there's nothing uh, dragging down for both of us. So it's so working, working pretty good so far. Obviously, Marshall, we don't know the future, right? If we discontinue this work, you know, ground might piss me off, maybe. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. I can't tell. But, but, but for now, the boys and the engineers and, you know, obviously including Graham, the whole team, it, for me, it's working certainly better than last year. 
you know, obviously not the best because we're not really winning every single week and of course not, but I think it's just a working better. So just question, you know, come back to your question and answering that. Yes, I am comfortable and, and uh, I am I am enjoying healthy competition between him and I. Yeah, I mean, just from the outside, this looks like you two could work together for as many years as you wanted to. If you wanted to race until you were 50, it looks like you've got a, you know, it looks like you've got a home there where uh, the two of you could. And I'm just suggesting don't retire anytime soon. We're having too much fun watching you kick some butt here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Let's go to uh, let's go to some of our questions here. We have both Jeff Zerneski and Bobby Rooney who've asked similar versions of the same question. Both are curious if you could share the IndyCar result you're most proud of outside of winning the Indy 500. So I don't know whether that would be a win or maybe a race where you just felt like you drove uh, amazingly. Right. Uh, something right. outside of Indy that you're proud of. Well, I mean, first of all, it has to it has to come, to come back to my first win in 2013 Long Beach. Mm. Um, I mean, that was a, just a tremendous day, beautiful day that AJ Foyt team works extremely well together. Um, we've shown a lot of, you know, great performance in 2013 already in pre-season testing. And, you know, Don Hardigan and I working um, first time ever, but then, uh, the, uh, you know, especially the many of, many of the, uh, the, um, um, uh, the people had a, a huge question mark written, how the hell was a big text and, you know, AJ Foyt and, <laughs> and the Japanese driver working? Now, well, of course, I have a question too. But you know, when when you spoke, when you speak to AJ, you know, you know that in AJ, well, maybe I don't know. Thirty years ago, maybe different. But nowadays, AJ is just so. How can I? How can I say that? Um, he's he's obviously a racer, right? A really oh, yeah. strong racer, really strong guy. But then he's quite cute too, you know. I mean, he's he just just full of fun and 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 always smile. And of course, racing, you know, he he's he get really crazy. Uh, sometimes really get crazy so quickly, but but that's that's a reflection of passion. And um, you know, I mean, over eighty, when I was I think eighty six, perhaps, yeah, eighty four, maybe I don't know. Um, it's the guy is still so much passionate to the racing. It is it is unbelievable thing. So when I first time to join the uh, the, the AJ Foyt, of course, you know, be proud of the. The, the, you know, the driving for the legendary 14 cars. But, you know, more you getting time together with AJ, you, I, I just learned so much history of him and so much passion. And of course, Larry Foyt and, and all the boys, the 14 boys was just so fantastic. So, you know, get back to the story. You know, you're already showing a great performance in Petersburg and then, uh, and then a winning in Long Beach. That was amazing. And then the following week at the San Paolo, is probably the one I picked the second too. That I had so much fun um, in the reading the race and and almost pulled back to back winning uh, for the team. So that was just magical things happening. So I, I really feel those two races was a uh, great fun, as well as you could say um, uh, maybe Detroit race. I don't remember which year, but I think I was still driving for the AJ. So it must be for or it could be 15 that was a wet race likely you know like like this weekend yeah, yeah. on Saturday um, I overtook I think a three Penske's car in two laps <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that was obviously fun and and uh, there was a there was a fun funniest part was not funniest but how can I say um, it was a great part was um, uh, Roger came on to me and he said uh, 
I told those three my boys that uh, Takuma is coming, so be careful. <laughs> you know that sort of thing. <laughs> so he he's obviously aware of the uh, you know our 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 strengths on on the uh, uh, the wet and the stuff like that. So it's always fun. Um, so and and of course this weekend you know Saturday it was just unexpected. Obviously we struggled in in qualify. You know we were second off the pace from the front row guys. So no chance whatsoever if there is a consistent condition. But you know. Weather really helped us, and uh, you know it was just uh, never expected to be that you can you know can be on the podium, and especially um, both wet and dry had a great battle with Ryan Huntray, and we, you know we used to have some history, but nowadays we respect each other. You know after you spend a year as a teammate, you know I liked Ryan a lot, and uh, we we have a hard battle, but which always fine, you know after a few years later, so. I, those those races are definitely great. Um, you can pick many of them you want. Sure, I mean, sure. It's just the Indy 500 last week too. That you know, obviously, it was it was a great comeback. You know, after that time. So those those indicators just it's just so much fun. That you know, so much on track action, and you just never give up. And then you you never know until last stint or last lap. Some cases that you know everything is happening. So yeah, it's it's um it's a, it's um. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a, I enjoy it. I've always struggled to pick the best races up. <laughs> well, but it's cool to hear that so many register with you, just that you're able to appreciate uh, yeah. all the good times as well. Let's go to Peter Knudsen, who asks, he says, uh, Takuma, how much does your significant experience as a driver maybe benefit or help your crew or vice versa, right? Because we opened speaking about the team and, uh, mm-hmm. and Eddie and such, but curious how you feel maybe you're able to contribute to the success as well beyond just turning the steering wheel. Sure. I think, um, I think that's a part of the driver's job or ability or certainly driver has to try hard is um, beside of driving to, to connect the team together. Um, now it's obviously it's very difficult to do that because it's just a single person's uh, uh, power is is smaller relatively as a group. But you know, driver can influence quite heavily. Um, you know, if you look at um, if you look at uh, a lot of successful driver, not just he is good at in the cockpit, but he is good at for um, I think it's just a how can I say getting connecting the team. And as I'm trying to that, um, because end of the day, you know, what care for the boys and, and the engineer, it is, it is essentially reflecting you back because that's the, what you have in terms of, uh, um, how we say, you know, as a competitive package, you need somebody, you need their help. And, sure. and so, so, so that is why, um, I don't know. The experience is one thing, yes, for sure. You know, as many as experience you have, it is sometimes successful experience, sometimes bitter experience, which is always good because you can learn so many stuff from there. And that's definitely helping. And I don't know specifically how much I really helped to building up the team. But certainly, uh, the, whoever I worked in the past and in the present too, that I don't remember I ever had a problem with working together. So the person-to-person, it is different characters. And you have to obviously handling a little bit different on, on liking and disliking. There is some bits and pieces as a human being, of course. But, you know, as a, as a, as a professionalism for the, for the race car driver, and um, I certainly listen to what they say. 
and putting all the possibility on top of the table and try it. And if that works, brilliant. If it doesn't work, you just say, how about this and this? You know, through your experience, you know, I want to do that. You know, if you go there for day one, there's always, always, how can I say, um, I don't know how to say English, but always there is a, like a, like a barrier, you know, barrier. You know, yeah, you yeah. always, you're going to negative, right? It's not, not necessarily negative, but it's just, uh, you know, because there's some pride, there's some in you know, their philosophy as well. You can't break through it from day one, but you have something. And if you try it together and if something works, you learn something new. And if it doesn't, I think let's shall do the new things, which probably I can bring it something. And then they are listening. You know, once you try it, establish together, I think they are listening. That's just, just I think it's normal behavior for the human being, perhaps. Now, that's, that's how I collaborate together. And, uh, and most of the time, I really appreciate uh, just uh, the people who are working together. It's, it's always uh, enjoying as well as we producing something better than um, before we met together. Let's go to Ryan Terpstra, who asks something. I believe I have one or two others who've asked something similar. He says, for Sato-san, if the IndyCar series was to have another race in Japan, where would you mm. like to see it held? And someone else asked something similar and said, if we were to go someplace other than Motegi, since that's right. where we were last. So are there, are there mm-hmm. any other tracks in your uh, your home country where you're like, boy, IndyCar people would just be smiling and jumping up and down if we got to go there? <laughs> right. Well, I think... Uh Obviously, I I love to love to love to come back to Japan, and I love to to driving in Motegi once again. I'm talking about super speedway. Mm. Um, you know, Motegi road course is is okay, pretty, but it's it's, it's for me it's not significant. I think Suzuka is more more attractive for sure. Um, but driving down to Suzuka, um, um, I think uh, uh, in IndyCar, I think we we all have a fun. But then it's probably. Hmm, it's it's a difficult. Um, I think it's a difficult in terms of um, uh, you know it is is it is it going to be extremely uh, excited race? It is questionable because overtaking is always difficult in Suzuka. But you know it is challenging in in, in, in a fantastic race course. So I, I really hope we can. Um, I wish I, re- I wish we we can return to the Motegi uh, Oval, uh, which is uh, which is another unique special course you know there is no other really race car truck a race oval truck that uh, you require some braking and downshift twice you know yeah. <laughs> in one lap so which is always challenging um but other than that to be honest i don't really know most of the uh, uh, the, the 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 track in japan but the um sugo which is uh, most part of Japan, yeah, Sendai. I think Sugo is uh, probably a quite fun track. You know, it's not a huge track, which is uh, perfect for the Indica. It's kind of uh, you know, kind of a mid Ohio size, I believe. And then uh, it's a lot of uh, elevation change and a great passing point maneuver. It's a heavy braking after long straight, in, and there's just a, such a technical slow speed sec- section as well as a huge commitment in the high speed section too. That um, I think it's a quite attractive race course. Um, so that's one thing, and then and, and hopefully, as IndyCars often have a great race, it's a street course. Now, of course, in Japan there is no history in a street course. I think that is why IndyCar can possibly, you know, make it a new history in Japan. That's what uh, that's what my dream result. So 
how about you know Yokohama Grand Prix or, or you know in Tokyo or maybe even Osaka? You know, I think it's it's many places. I think it's possible physically um, if uh, if you can get the government correct. Um, you know, the, the I think mentality and uh, go through the, some of the uh, criteria. I think that would be such an attractive event for the Indian in street course. Well, we've had both Michael Andretti and Roger Penske as promoters in the series. Maybe Takuma Sato promotions while you're still driving. Huh? I don't know. Yeah, because you need that, more. Man. You need more work. You don't have enough right now. Uh, okay. Well, okay. as as always, we're fortunate to have more questions and we have time to answer. So uh, I'll grab one or two more before we have to let you go, Taku. So let's go mm-hmm. with uh, Brett Ross, who has a great question. He says, how is your son's go-karting career going and uh, how many of his races do you get to see? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, he started uh, the racing a, a couple of years ago. I think this is a... Uh, uh, doing doing it properly, I think this is a second and I just get into third season. Um, he's doing okay. He's still learning uh, a lot, um, of course, as a young driver. And um, I often didn't see him and uh, driving together at the off season. So obviously, mostly the winter time. Um, doing doing IndyCar season is, is obviously extremely difficult. But if there is any a break for more than ten days. I go back to Japan, see him, and go together with a race car, a car truck, and, and, and fun to watch. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a judging any anybody who under fifteen is. I think it's a bit too early. You know, they they are process of uh, uh, more more how can I say um, education level and um, and as well as uh, their racing skill is year by year is a completely new things you can find out. So that's that's it's. Wait and see how he. At least he's enjoying. That's most important. So we'll see how he comes up in the next few years. Well, we'll wait to send Lewis Hamilton the note <laughs> that says, "Hey, buddy, your, your time is running out. We got some. We got a new Sato coming." Uh, let's close on this, and this is a great one from Ed Davis, who says, "Takuma, what do you do uh, to help recover? Say last weekend during the uh, the dual races in Detroit. What do you do to help recover Saturday night?" from such a punishing street race to be able to do it all over again on Sunday. Right. Um, it's, um, it's just to conserve energy, of course. That's one thing, which is, um, which is of course, um, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm uh, now it's a great deal with the, you know, it's a motorhome deal. So the first time I have a motorhome now uh, consecutively to my, I mean, own motorhome. I, I, I've rented a couple of times in the past, which works okay. But then your, your stuff, you're just getting in and out and, you know, it's always a different bed and stuff like that. So having your own stuff in your own bed and own environment is always helping. And even talk about, you know, 20 minutes going back to, to hotel, you know, back and forth, that is, that is really, you know, how can I say? It's not tiring, but it's, it's definitely destructive. And, and to have that own space is definitely better. And then and I have my physio with me together. So he's look after my body. Um, and and, and uh, we, have a, we have a good long uh, massage session every single night so that, that I, I'm basically completely naked after that and then go into the bed and have a good sleep. So sleeping time, it is, and the quality of the sleep, it is extremely important. Uh, and luckily this year, the Detroit on first race was also, it was exciting, but because of the raining situation, 
physically it wasn't that hard you know to compare to the most of the dry Detroit race so uh, you know it wasn't too bad so even 42 years old and, and nice and refreshing come back the next morning so it's no problem I <laughs> love I, it I yeah, the key is good food so you need a, you need a good fuel right <laughs> and um, and then a good quality of the sleep and uh, just to take care of yourself and, and manage your, your conserved energy I think that's the key Sean Lee, really happy to see what Guess International is doing in bringing the biogas industry. I'm not saying you represent the entire industry as a whole, but I'm really happy to see you and what you are doing, your team leading this initiative, coming into IndyCar and saying, this is a sport where we believe we can make an impact to grow awareness for what we do. We also see great value in the ability to take our product as well and have this become not just a marketing exercise but an actual use and demonstration exercise you've gone very far very quickly in supporting individual drivers i know that you're uh, mentioned here this morning we'll get to this in a moment that you want to expand that as well let's just start with what you're seeing in indycar that says all right this is a match for us we think we can do good things here well, first of all, obviously, coming from a racing background, I understand uh, racing uh, fairly well, um, and we're, we appreciate the efforts and we appreciate the welcome by you and other entities into the sport, back into the sport. Um, we believe that this is a great platform for us to demonstrate the abilities uh, in support of the teams and you know, renewable natural gas uh, marketing and production and a great platform to display what renewable natural gas or some people deem it biogas um, into the marketplace. So uh, a lot of the graphics uh, on the car are talking about renewable natural gas, not necessarily our company, um, because we want to promote in the marketplace. And we've uh, been working very carefully with the American Biogas Council, who's been a real big supporter of this, uh, also to the RNG Coalition you know, out of California. And what I find interesting about this, and this conversation we're having is not a sponsor plug, it's just this is, fascinates me because anytime you have a growing and important market sector that is finding value in exploring a sport like IndyCar and attaching itself to that, it makes me curious to learn about where the synergies exist, where the connection points you find and say, okay, this isn't just a marketing thing. Any Every car has something that it's purely marketing-based. This initiative seems to have a lot more substance to it and wanting to be here. Yeah, we're not here just to put stickers or decals on the car. We're here to... Uh, adamantly promote a message and that message we not only want to deliver we want to show it an actual an actual operations so for example in regards to the conversion of the diesel trucks uh, we expect to make announcements this next week uh, we believe thursday of this next coming week before the 500 on several or a number of the teams agreeing to can do a conversion on the initial trucks and systems uh, to renewable natural gas. 
So, again, we don't want it just to be stickers on the car. We're not here just to sponsor cars. We're here to make a difference and impact the sport in a positive way and the environment. I also like the angle that I have seen in not just trying to connect directly with the series as a partner or teams as a partner. I've really enjoyed you being a former race car driver, open wheel, etc. I mean, coming up this sport as well, you and your team have taken the approach of trying to identify younger drivers to support directly who could also, I believe, maybe bring this message forward that I'm not saying older drivers could not, but there seems to be a bit of a age and youth model that fits as well with the messaging here. You're absolutely correct. Uh, there's two two parts to it. When I was an up and coming driver, to have a sponsor come on and sponsor me w- was a huge thing. Unfortunately, some of my sponsors weren't necessarily great for the environment uh, at that time. Um, but at the same time, too, if we can bring a sponsorship to young drivers when it's very difficult for them to get sponsorship, and then to bring a green message, you know, on top of it, uh, it's only a benefit for everybody. So. We will continue to do that. Uh, we've tried to support uh, Patricia Ward and, you know, Colton Herta. Uh, unfortunately, Patricio's not in the exact right situation we'd like him to be in right now. And we're going to take a look at that, you know, again, coming up in the near future. But certainly Colton is in that, that place. So we look forward to supporting the young drivers just as we're being supported by bigger investment you know investing into a smaller growing company it's the same for us investing into young and upcoming drivers that are have got talent and uh bring that message to the younger people of the united states and the world and you're also looking to in terms of future announcements hopefully expand that pool of support as well right we we have already signed agreements with other teams to work on fuel conversions to renewable natural gas. Uh, this will be announced this coming week, um, I believe Thursday of this week. And we believe that will be at least three to four teams making that announcement. Let's close on this, Sean. So the hope of every IndyCar team is when a highly identifiable brand from a market sector that hasn't really been IndyCar shows up, everyone hopes that the rest of the industry will follow to sponsor, right? I mean, the first uh, tobacco sponsor, alcohol, you name it. Everyone hopes that there's just a, a rush. Do you have any feel, being the leader so far in this, do you have any feel as to with, whether the rest of the renew, renewable gas industry might find interest in being here too? Or would you prefer if you kind of held this space on your own? Well, I mean, obviously, for financial reasons, we'd like to hold this space on our own for some period of time, but certainly we're not going to restrict any other renewable natural gas entities uh, in. As a matter of fact, we have encouraged uh, strategic partners to come in with us, and they are responding uh, more and more. Uh, Over the coming months, you'll actually see more sponsorship and more companies related to uh, the production and delivery of renewable natural gas uh, involved with our programs, and then from there, our program expanding. So coming up, uh, you'll see two cars at at least three to five races this year. 
So you definitely will not see just one car. I can say that there will be an announcement coming where there's already signed agreements for there to be at least four races where there will be at least two cars at the race. I love this. And I'd also be ending prematurely if I didn't ask out of just pure ignorance, having seen obviously the guest branding on the car and such. The capstone turbine, where does that fit in? So the capstone turbines are the only EPA or Environmental Protection Agency certified green power production units. So they utilize much like a jet engine or jet aircraft. Uh, They use a spinning turbine with no oil. So they, they produce electricity with using no oil products or no lubricants. All the materials are done on air bearing. If you were to go into their shop, love it. This their is office, cool. yeah, it's just completely clean. It's like a race shop inside, you know, the, the facility. And by utilizing those uh, turbines, uh, we are uh, producing electricity that's run and required for the plant itself. Plus, in addition, we use solar to provide electricity, and then the turbines provide electricity and heat. So, effectively, you can produce uh, a capstone microturbine can produce take one fuel and produce three or two or three byproducts. So, it's more efficient, you know, doing that, um, and it's also provides jobs because capstone turbines are made in California. So, Colton's from California. Capstone turbines are from California. Your host here is from California. I am not very, well, I'm not as green as I should be, but I'm trying to eat better, stay away from Taco Bell. So we're making good strides there. Um, I guess what I'm liking the most here, Sean, is we have something where the majority of folks that I know in motor racing detest Formula E. There's obviously a wonderfully green aspect to it, but there's nothing compelling about it for so many people. It's hard to sell internal combustion engine-based competition in a green capacity, but there are certainly ways to reduce any of the negative impacts. I know we can't talk about some of the stuff you're working on as well, but as a Californian guy who does live in a very, very strident portion of the northern california bay area where if you're not green you're not a very good person it's just really cool to hear that you and some of the companies you're affiliated with are actually looking for ways to truly bring this into indycar without changing the heart of the series yeah so there's no there's no desire to change from a combustible engine um and ethanol currently and is a great partner it's a great fuel uh, our company in the biogas sphere uh, can partner with ethanol plants very successfully that benefits the ethanol plant and it benefits our company. Um, as we grow and, you know, ethanol grows um, and renewable natural gas grows, the, the first target would be to work on the diesel transporters yeah. and the, you know, passenger car, you know, business is also, or like fleets, for example, and helping IndyCar reduce its overall carbon footprint is a great place to start. Um, if it becomes uh, an option to, as it was suggested this morning, to have biogas power the Indy Lights cars as a starting point or an example, uh, we certainly can work for, for 
that aspect. And that's a great place to start uh, as well. And, you know, definitely up for discussion. Uh, but we at the same time, too, we like ethanol. We believe ethanol has a great space. Biogas has an octane rating of 131. So renewable natural <laughs> gas has a super high octane rating, by the way. So people are asking us constantly, well, is it the fuel as good or as bad? So it's actually better. It sounds like bio nitro. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So biogas can definitely, uh, renewable natural gas um, is definitely a high octane, uh, environmentally friendly uh, material to utilize in combustion engines. Sean Lee, thanks for spending some time with us. No, thank you. We appreciate it. We appreciate your efforts, and we continue and want to support uh, not only Hardering Steinbrenner, uh, not only Colton Herta, but the series, the other teams, the other drivers in as much way as we can, um, you know, going forward. Thank you. All right, let's get go with the questions you have for me. We're going to start with Eli Hoopengarner, who says, Marshall, now that Detroit is over, it's time to bring the turbo boost pressure down from 1.5 bar to 1.3 bar for this weekend's race at Texas. How is this done? It is all done electronically, Eli. So boost controllers, uh, waste gates in play. It's a fairly easy, easy thing that is changed. And whether it is the 1.5 maximum boost or the kind of lower mid-range 1.3 and such this is all done through computers and this is also done with complementary mapping as well which i guess you might expect so that when there is a case of reduced turbo boost therefore a reduction in overall power both chevy and honda have engine maps that get loaded into the ecu that are designed and tuned to perfectly Uh, work with the turbos at least the intent is for them to work perfectly with the turbos to maximize uh, boost pressure over the entire 12,000 rpm range just making a bit less boost therefore a bit less power but yeah this is all laptop stuff not actual hard mechanical work let's go next to colin young who says having seen some of the nascar race shops and their fleets of race cars I'm surprised how few chassis IndyCar teams seem to have in their arsenals. How many Delara DW12 chassis has Delara made, and are there still any being used that date back to 2012? On the first part, Colin, definitely a, a culture difference between IndyCar and NASCAR in that, you know, granted, when we do have the the car of tomorrow or the next generation, whatever NASCAR called its most recent thing, uh, you have a vehicle that at its core can be rebodied and used and sold and you name it. So these are pretty serious utensils that you would hold on to. They also build many, many, many of them. And knowing that with an Indy car that is meant to be a single kind of utility knife that can go to a short oval, big oval, medium oval, road course, street course, etc. Uh, one car does all in nascar they definitely uh, build a lot of different cars that are made with special modifications that would be better suited for a super tiny oval big oval a lot of the different ovals that they go to super speedways so they build a lot of them and they also either trade hands a lot uh, get rebodied a lot 
over their lifespan. So I think that's the main difference why you would see going to a Hendrick shop, why they would seemingly have a, a small uh, car park filled with cup cars compared to an IndyCar shop that has not a whole lot. Uh, you can look at a place like Chip Ganassi Racing. I know they have their wall of cars that they've used from over the years, uh, and that's just them keeping them. And granted, they aren't things that could be used currently, by and large, because they're from different uh, past and bygone eras. Uh, as for how many DW12s have been built, I don't have the exact number. Uh, I believe it is somewhere up in the 50s or 60s, something along those lines. As for if there are any being used from 2012, again, I don't know. Uh, the person who used to know, who used to keep track of all these things, was Brian Barnhart. And so he was my go-to first call. And now, since he's running a racing team, uh, I've yet to... Here's a just a fun little thing. And this is no disrespect meant to Delara. I'm just sharing something that's honest. Um, the people there or at least uh, the senior most person there who's a lovely chap who is is always happy to answer questions if you see him in person i know that he has a mobile phone i know that he has a desk phone um it's also kind of a waste of your time to use those things because getting a call back or actually having that device picked up and used um <laughs> yeah uh kind of not really a very good use of one's time so with questions like yours, Colin, I'd usually try to ring and get an answer. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's sometimes been months where, oh, yeah, that's right. You called. You go, I don't even remember what I called to ask about, my friends. So if I think of it and if I run into uh, the right person, I will try and get back to you on that one. Let's go to Jim Barnett, who says, MP, hybrid consideration. With the great speeds IndyCars create, can the air either passing over the car and or through the car be used to create electricity, perhaps microfibers vibrating on the surface, or propellers spinning inside? Could IndyCar team with MIT and others? Well, I love the question, Jim, and I love the line of thinking. At least for what you've mentioned, that sounds like aerodynamic drag, which probably wouldn't be something that most teams are wishing upon themselves. But I do love the mindset and the spirit behind this. Um, how's this? Your, your closing question of could IndyCar team with MIT and others to develop some uh, non-traditional hybrid stuff, next possible future-based stuff? I would rather see IndyCar open up their rules to allow teams to strike up those relationships so that if Team Penske wanted to maybe forge a relationship with MIT to find out what they could do on that front and engage a commercial partner, if Andretti Autosport could work with Stanford, if Ed Carpenter Racing could work with Butler University and so on and so forth, boy, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, of course, ever the, the knee-jerk reaction is always costs. Oh, it's going to be costs, and the sky is going to fall. You know, one of the cool things, which maybe has been forgotten a lot because we live in an era and have lived in an era where cost control and spec everything has just kind of killed the spirit of curiosity and innovation in so many ways, the one place to find money is when you were 
wanting to blaze a trail forward into something new that is where investors say hey all right this could produce something cool yeah i'm not going to give you a blank check but if this thing you're going to try and do that you think might work pays off well i'm going to reap the benefits financially uh this is a place where r&d money comes from with a manufacturer or a fortune 500 company tech related possibly Um, there's just so much fear that automatically comes in jim costs we're going to kill the sport you got to keep everything locked down tell me name another sport that says hey we're going to not let you do anything (laughs) it's just going to be off the shelf stuff and the human spirit and curiosity nope and businesses and r&d budgets and just really trying to do some big picture things nope all that stuff's gone and those series are thriving or those sports are thriving they aren't they just simply aren't so i apologize actually don't apologize it's just me being me this is my little soapbox i get on it rather frequently i don't know if it's doing anything i don't know if i'm just talking to myself frankly uh when i do but the whole hybrids are going to kill indycar hybrids are going to kill nascar name whatever it is opening up the sport too much it's going to get taken over and it's going to destroy things it's going to put too much hardship on the little guys the little teams this is reality (laughs) the reality is carlin racing is not winning races hunkos racing is not winning races delcoin racing has yet to win a race this year Arrow Schmidt Peterson Motorsports has yet to win a race this year. The big teams are always going to be better off, and the smaller teams are not. That's not because of rules. That's not because of anyone doing anything bad or mean. That's just life and reality. Those with more tend to have more, and the inverse is true as well. So opening things up is not going to create any kind of massive imbalance because there's always an imbalance. Uh, The one thing that trying to keep everything locked down is to create parity and how close things are. That's cool. If parity is your thing, again, I can't think in really any other place in life, uh, at least on a sporting side, where parity, we want things as close as possible. We want every team to score as many points, every team to have as many sacks, as many home runs, as many strikeouts, it just doesn't that doesn't work it doesn't exist so i don't know how this kind of blueprint of everything spec and simple and cheap as possible it's become the way in racing i get that in so many places but yeah jim i love your mindset i love the fact that uh rather than at least my take on an indycar working with mit or someone else to come up with a quote spec type hybrid system these are the things in the rules that in a modern society should be free and open for teams to go and seek on their own for their personal benefit as a a business entity and also for the benefit, hopefully, of the automotive sector, tech sector, you name it, actual people working together and collaborating to do good and big things. I love that idea. I wish more did, though. Let's go to Corey Lloyd, who says, question for you at texas can you explain the mechanical super speedway tricks i understand body fit but heard wheel bearings and gearboxes after the indie practice crashes wouldn't you use the lowest available friction for all tracks 
He also says buy two cents on the Indy 500. Alexander Rossi had enough horsepower to beat all but one Chevy, as did Sato. I love that take, Corey. So in trying to explain this, the only thing I could come up with is thinking of the super speedway, and that really is Indy 500 by and large, and then Pocono to a degree. I'm not sure so much about Texas, but uh, thinking of these very specialized items used at, we'll just say the Indy 500 for right now, as your absolute best suit, that one that you wear once a year, it's very expensive. It's only meant for weddings and weddings for the people that you really, really, really care about. You've got your finest shoes that are perfectly polished, extremely expensive. The inverse would be, as you mentioned here, which does make sense. Wouldn't you want to use the lowest available friction items for all tracks? Be somewhat the equivalent of wearing that finest suit all day every day and the cost involved of its upkeep uh, the cost involved of whether it would last having to now replace that on a much more frequent basis uh, at least me and i assume i'm like most people or many people i do indeed have one really nice suit and it doesn't get rolled out very often and i could not afford to wear that every day i could not afford to have that when i'm working on the car uh, as my attire etc etc that's really how i think of the specialized items you have mentioned Corey, in terms of them being used everywhere and the reason being is the costs first of all uh, there's also the high frequency of usage meaning not just the miles turned on track but if we think about texas this weekend when I think of Texas, I have visions of the final laps of the Daytona 500, of cars spinning, crashing on fire, some sort of big pileup. There's almost guaranteed every year at Texas, there's going to be two, three, four, five, six, seven cars. I don't know how many, but it's usually a handful of cars that are just battered wrecks by the end. And so while if I'm a team owner, I'm saying, yeah, I definitely want to have the low frictiony goods that I can, but I'm going into Texas thinking those things are coming away destroyed. So am I truly going to spend all the time in the world trying to make the most perfect super speedway car for Texas? Even if I had the money to spend to do that, I might have some reservations just knowing I expect to have a half-destroyed, if not completely destroyed, car leaving there. That place, it's an amazing race. It's crazy to watch. Just It's a high consumption rate of physical goods. So another thing, too, to keep in mind here, Corey, and this is maybe just the visuals involved. So I remember it was a couple years ago. Um, I think I do remember the driver now driver was telling me he was a third he was added on to a team for the 500 and we were in his garage either early in the morning or end of the day mechanics weren't there more or less by himself in his corner of the garage and his car was up in the air on stands and had the tow wheels on it 
and <laughs> one of his teammates cars was next to him a full-time driver and he just said hey look at this and he went over to his teammates i think it was left front wheel uh, tire and spun the thing and it just went bzzz, super free super easy spinning readily as if there was indeed no friction he said now take a look at mine and just stepped over and spun his right front tire and it might have done one and a half rotations i don't remember exactly how many his teammates did but it felt like seven eight nine ten it was just so apparent the difference in drag the difference in friction and he said look you know the reason that i'm going out here and finishing each day in practice 28th or whatever it's not because i don't know how to drive it's because as you said and as i use it every now and then the go fast bits Corey, yeah they're not on my car i don't have low friction wheel bearings there's nothing in the gearbox that is low friction. Uh, I'm giving up a mile, mile and a half per hour in top speed because my car is just simply not as mechanically efficient as my teammates. So it takes a lot of time. It does take money to make these things happen. It's also the reason why when James Hinchcliffe crashed and did not get into the fast 30 on Saturday at Indy, uh, the reason that for Sunday with his teammate Marcus Erickson, Having qualified, the reason that the team uh, grafted on the back end of Marcus's car, uh, put his gearbox, bell housing, you name it, on the back of his car is because we were looking at things that were low friction and highly optimized. And that was definitely, it was a brilliant, brilliant decision, something that I would have done and I think everyone else would have done given those same circumstances because knowing that speed was just waiting there to be had and running a car without those optimized pieces uh, certainly would have slowed James and made getting in the show even harder Sunday morning. So <clears throat> definitely needs to be on the cars in order to get the uh, final amount of speed out of them, Corey, but also just something, like I said, think of it like the best suit in your closet <clears throat> and certainly not something that you can really afford to wear at all times just due to cost and the uh, ridiculous, ridiculous amount of wear that would be involved. Let's go to Lance Snyder. It says, MP, previously we've discussed IndyCar games. It says, why doesn't IndyCar work with iRacing and have an officially sanctioned world championship much like Porsche and NASCAR have done? Yet another great question, Lance. I don't know if iRacing is the solution. Uh, I don't know if something bigger, a bigger gaming system something that's more console based or otherwise uh is the way to go i that i cannot say because i don't have that expertise in any way shape or form it's been a while since i actually kind of sort of stayed plugged into those things but i can say that you know i mean we're halfway through 2019 man and uh yeah sure just seems like others see a priority where you would think it'd be a really big priority even if it was a stopgap thing hey we're not sure but we want to make sure you got something so for the rest of the year you go to iRacing or wherever um and here's an option i know that there's you know the additions of indycar pack and whatnot on i think it's forza and whatnot but again i don't know lance um 
there are so many things that IndyCar is doing right. This is just one of those things that I continue. I've mentioned this not too long ago. This isn't a new thing. It's been years where this has been a glaring omission. And I have no feel for when someone within the company is going to say, damn it, I'm solving this. The solution might not be perfect, but we are we cannot continue to be a really significant North American big market sporting entity and have nothing to offer our fans as a direct option. So, yeah, I I don't know, man. I, I wish this wasn't a thing to talk about, uh, but it continues to be. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, hey, Ryan, says, MP, any idea what was up with the red tires at Detroit? Firestone is pretty much never a storyline. I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought the fact that the reds were not the hot ticket and the consumption rate was dramatically, dramatically, holy poop. Uh, What, we had some drivers who really did not feel they could get more than five or six laps out of them in the race. We saw something fairly impressive, again, comparatively impressive with Scott Dixon going like 10 laps on them. And there was another driver who I think went nine or 10 ish laps, but then (laughs) it's like he started dragging an anchor around and had to get off them immediately. Uh, I love that man. That's actually, that's actually the thing that I would hope happens more often. If you're going to have two tires, two different types of tires, uh, my brain says, that is an intentional variable that has been thrown into the mix. And if they are both so darn good, as is usually the case, where, yeah, the reds are going to get you a little bit more performance, but they're also going to last a long time, maybe not as long as the primaries, but, you know, it's version 1 and 1A. They're, they're close in lap times and durability, and, you know, of course, it's a strategy choice on what to use and when, but unlikely that choosing one over the other at a particular time at Toronto, Elkhart Lake, wherever, is going to win or lose you the race. I actually kind of sort of wish, Ryan, that we would have uh, what we saw at Detroit with one being the, oh, you got you to gotta swallow, swallow a pretty, pretty unhappy little lump here. Uh, at some point in time, I loved seeing how teams said, all right, we know this is bad in terms of longevity. When are we going to make it bad for ourselves? It was fascinating to see how many teams said, we're going to go out and start the race Sunday, for example, right away, get those reds on the car, get the minimum lapse requirements done, and then we can pit as soon as we want or if there's a yellow, but we're creating an option to get off these things ASAP and then spend the rest of the race on blacks. Then yet a couple of folks say, well, we didn't qualify great. Let's create a fun little variable for ourselves and start with blacks and we'll figure it because we know we're going to be faster over a longer duration and we'll work in the reds whenever we can. Santino Ferrucci was one of them. Uh, the team, I still don't understand why they kept pounding around lap after lap after lap with a kid in the lead with everyone else having pitted and then ultimately uh, they got coded 
got bit with a yellow and the kid, you know, lost any chance of a real serious, um, you know, podium result at least, uh, because while he was on blacks, I believe at that time, again, I might be getting this confused in my head. I apologize, but uh, I believe he then actually had to go in and get reds, but whatever it was, uh, it was just interesting seeing the team really try and work out. All right. Can we do something a little different? Can we use an alternate strategy with Firestone's alternate tires? So I would actually be the guy who says, Ryan, I would love to see this happen more often where teams go know in advance that there's going to be a rough patch. How do you manage it? When do you manage it? Um, I thought that was a really cool thing. And let's see, what else can I cover for y'all on the good old Twitters before jumping over to Facebook? Noah Richardson asks something regarding a tweet that Adam Stern sent out around the 500 about IndyCar hosting five manufacturers. Noah is also curious as to whether there's been any development with those manufacturers or anything in general in terms of getting a new manufacturer involved for 2021 when IndyCar's next engine formula comes into play. Haven't had a chance to catch up with Jay on this, nor do I know if he would tell me everything that I would want to know. I might think, Noah, that as we get closer to this new formula coming in and knowing that IndyCar really is in a crunch time to make uh, something happen, if it's going to make it happen with a manufacturer, uh, at least someone that might want to come in for the first year of the new formula um, might get harder and harder to get any little kernels of information or confirmations or denials or whatever might be harder just to get things in general, knowing that for just talking general timelines, uh, if I'm a manufacturer wanting to come and play in IndyCar with new engines on track for testing, actual formal testing of some sort by the end of 2020, call it less than a year and a half from now, I'm wanting to draw my first lines of that motor in CAD right about now. Definitely within the next couple of months. Of course, this could be pushed back. There's, you know, depending on the size of the organization, how deep and robust their motorsports arm happens to be, or if they would go to an external vendor like a Cosworth or a Judd, an AER, a Mechachrome, a so on and so forth. Um, you know, just in a very general sense, if a manufacturer wanted to come in and play for 2021, they're really looking at a clock. It's a comfort clock. <laughs> uh, they're looking at a clock that is winding down and really starting to impinge on that comfort. So I would not think name whatever brand would want to wait more than another month or two, maybe three, um, you know, to at least again, draw the very first lines of what that motor would be and start machining items, get the, uh, get a one cylinder test mule up and running and try and learn from that. Uh, but we're talking about just comfort and intent, uh, a case where, you know, there are not really any manufacturers I can think of that would want to be on track with in the back of Indy cars with teams signed by the end of 2020 before the 
testing blackout window starts usually what is it uh kind of end of november early december if they're going to be doing that they're not going to be wanting to start cutting metal for the first time in january of 2020 they're going to want to be doing it this summer use this summer to do a whole ton of work on test beds uh, in dyno cells uh, a lot of uh, not only CAD work, but also CFD uh, to get the internal uh, flows right. Uh, some other software work as well with finite element analysis from a torsional rigidity standpoint, from a uh, weight saving standpoint of cutting away what they don't need in areas that aren't needed. Just a lot of work. And so there are some great experts out there. Uh, I do need to check in with Chevy and Honda on their preferred timeline to get started uh, in terms of the real hard stuff. I'm sure they're also probably not going to be super willing like Jay Fry to tell me too much because they don't want either one to know what they're doing and when. But yeah, this is definitely not a case where time is a luxury, even though, again, we're here in June of 2019. And in theory, these engines will not be racing for the first time until February or March of 21. But so that I would say that's the main mindset that I have, Noah. And I know that isn't a specific update on the five manufacturers uh, that were, quote, hosted at the 500. I have heard, though, that they weren't, I don't know if host, hosted might be a little strongly worded, uh, invited, met with, spoken with, you name it. But, uh, not necessarily there and just given the full wine and dine just kind of a hey come take a look if you haven't before some of you we've met with before but not here necessarily come and see the power and strength of what the indy 500 is up close and in person and let's also continue to dialogue at whatever stage we are at again among the different manufacturers to see if and what we might be able to come up with so if I'm able to get a deeper insight as to whether there's any real traction among any of the five there or others, we'll obviously be writing about that ASAP. And now it's time to move over to Facebook. And we're going to kick it off with Bobby Rooney. Says, Marshall, thinking about your family and missed you at Detroit. Thank you, Bobby. Says, to take your mind off things for a moment, in your opinion, who are the three or four most talented drivers that made it into IndyCar for a race or a couple of seasons in the last 10 or 12 years but couldn't stick in the series for longer because they didn't have a budget, were sorely underrated, or otherwise couldn't get a ride? I'm looking for drivers who, given the career opportunities and longevity of a Hinch or a Sato, for example, could have been top five contenders, top five finishers, in the championship you know the one that comes to mind the most is jack hawksworth Uh, boy just looking at how well developed he has become now that he has been in imsa for a couple of years knowing how he did some impressive things as a rookie with brian hurt autosport and i think definitely demonstrated that uh, there was a lot of talent there, just truly a lot of talent there, but one also that needed developing. I think about him finishing on the podium at Houston as a rookie. Uh, I think about, you know, some other good things that he did um, was pretty strong at Indy on his uh, debut in the GP there 
was pretty good at the 500 as well. Um, you know, that team was also under pretty heavy financial duress in 2014 when he was a rook. Uh, their energy drink sponsor, whatever its name was, uh, didn't come through. I mean, it was very tight times. Then he moved to A.J. Foyt Enterprises and was actually able to do some things that knowing what the Foyt team has been, uh, you know, a couple of top tens here or there, mostly road and street courses. Um, then the following year, uh, hoping to get more, and the team was an even bigger calamity. And, yeah, just someone that really strikes me as uh, someone who is certainly worth a uh, worth more than what he got uh, having watched him just pummel the field when he won his pro Mazda championship in 2012 his uh, next season the next year graduating up to Indy Lights was good won a handful of races there didn't get the title but really wasn't any question to me that this kid had something very special and I think that he really showed glimpses strong glimpses of that as a rookie with brian herda the time at foyt just was a waste a waste of his time and you know as a result he's out of the series and i don't know if anyone's thinking about him unfortunately i would say he stands out first and foremost bobby kind of from that era a couple years ago there are a few others uh that jump out as well and this guy actually had you know, plenty of time. Uh, I just don't think he was in the right environment. And that was Mikhail Lotion. We saw the guy was <laughs> fearless on ovals. Uh, it was just a blast to watch. And not trying to be critical of the Schmidt team at the time, but they've gone through a lot of changes, tried to improve a lot of things internally. I don't know how much driver development leadership uh, they had while Mikhail was there. I mean, obviously they have, you know, really great driver coach and such a Bob Perona, but I just mean, you know, it, when you, when I think about a Ganassi, a Penske and Andretti, uh, they do have a very strong, you know, call it almost Academy like approach of taking a rookie or a driver. That's just new to IndyCar racing, maybe coming from Europe as Mikhail did. And it's a very intense approach to not only getting them up to speed, but ways and practices and mindsets. I just don't know if Mikhail stepped into an environment at SPM that was really conducive to seeing where he was at and saying, we are going to craft you into the best you can be as an overall driver. And we know the guy could stand on the gas. Uh, we know that because he either had great finishes or he broke the throttle pedal while crashing into things while standing on the gas. Um, but I think that there was something pretty special there with Mikhail. And he, again, he came here, pretty strong resume, uh, especially in road racing. Just think that there could have been a lot more, uh, someone that in someone else's hands, I think that guy could have been a pretty serious, serious front runner. I'll throw another one out here, and that would be Carlos Munoz as well. Good old Carlos had the fastest hands possible, and boy, uh, when things were working well for him, he was an absolute rocket. Where his limitations 
or exploited is everything I've ever heard about Carlos is the guy cannot tell the front of the car from the back of the car in terms of chassis setup, just not his forte. And it's a wonderful thing when you're driving for Andretti Autosport and you have three, four, five crazy good engineers, lots of amazing data coming in from teammates that can help make a great car. Can't always rely on those folks though. Can't always look to them to come up with the solutions. So while I think the Andretti team really helped Carlos improve his natural talent, I'm not sure if I can think of a team that's really, you know, well known for making a technical star out of their drivers, helping to take someone who doesn't know the least bit about anything and turning them into someone who can almost call all the correct changes they want. Um, But that to me was something where I don't know if it fits your exact criteria, Bobby, but Carlos just stands out to me as someone where I don't know, maybe with a, maybe with a different team, a team that recognized, okay, this guy does have silly, silly amounts of talent, but we need to really focus the first year or two of our relationship on making him the most talented feedback driver possible. And then we'll be able to extract all of his enormous driving talent. So those are the couple that at least come to mind at the moment. uh, Let's see, where shall we go next? We'll go to Chris Ward, who says, Marshall, is there a way the series could mandate teams run a larger number in the cars in speedway trim? Says, I really enjoyed seeing it done on the Herta and Andretti cars at Indy. The placement was large enough and would help the fans at the race differentiate the drivers, most notably Hinch and Erickson. Thoughts? Uh, It also says continued prayers and well wishes for Mrs. P. For me, Chris, this is one that I always find a little bit weird. And it also just reminds me that what I look towards is clearly different than some. I don't often remember all the numbers of the cars. (laughs) I have to, a little secret here, if I'm writing a session report or a race report or whatever, I often either get them wrong or have to go look them up. It's oh, okay. Yeah, Rossi's driving the 98 car. Got it. No, no, idiot. He changed 27 a couple of years ago. 27, I thought, isn't that the Hunter Ray? No, idiot. That's the 28 car. Okay. So, uh, so which one's Marco driving? The 26? No, idiot. He's in the 98. Um, what I look towards aren't the numbers. It's the colors of the car. And knowing that sometimes, as you mentioned, uh, Hinch and Erickson were in identically presented cars, I look to the helmets. So even knowing that sometimes, like this weekend, Rossi's car will be uh, in guess colors at Texas, uh, provided he isn't also changing his helmet to go with something different for this weekend, those are the things I tend to look towards. Hinch's helmet with the day glowish, almost day glow, I'm not sure exactly what reddish, orangish, whatever color, that sucker is easy to spot. And so I know that of the two Aero Schmidt Peterson Motorsports cars, I always look to the driver's helmet to know what's what. Uh, considering just size, Uh, driver's helmet and the colors presented there are probably always going to be an easier faster thing to differentiate than trying to pick out a number 
based on whatever angle you're at or seeing the car flash by. So unless we're talking huge old NASCAR style door numbers, um, at least the way I look at it, Chris, is the number thing. I just don't even really look at that. Uh, and also I try and pay attention to livery changes. So if we do go into a Texas and Rossi is not in Napa colors, but is in guess, then I know that when I see the green and white go by, that is going to be Rossi for the weekend or Marco, for example, at the speedway, that super day glow red, which was just amazing. It doesn't even need numbers. Uh, you know that the minute you see that color, it's Marco Andretti. Um, but again, I do know that, and I, I'm constantly reminded that there are some who are not thinking colors on the car or colors on a helmet, but indeed looking for a number to tell them what it is. So um, maybe that's a blind spot for me, or maybe the color thing might be another way of looking at things for those who don't. Um, as for the series mandating larger number and speedway trim, I, again, I can't foresee that happening just because there's not a lot of excess real estate to take up. And I know that the series would rather ask teams to use smaller numbers so that they have the majority of space to sell. Let's go to John Sable, who says, since last week was busy, wanted to touch on the Indy 500 again, if possible, while it was an entertaining race. I do wonder if it becomes a bit of a snoozer. If you remove Alexander Rossi from it, he was easily the biggest storyline of the race. And if he isn't there to make passes or lose his mind, understandably, are we left with a meh race due to the difficulty of passing? Has there been any further talks of improving the show or is everyone pretty happy uh, and on to Texas and Pocono? I know, John, for sure, the topic that you raise of, hey, there's a little bit of a snoozer there for three quarters of the event. I know that that has registered with the series. What I don't know is if there's been any actionable items. This would be another thing for me to try and catch up on as I have time, hopefully more free time becoming available in the coming days or weeks. Not a hundred percent sure where IndyCar would go on this topic because with the Universal Aero Kit, with some of the tweaks that they made it, made this year, I was about to say mated as I make up a new word, um, they did add the option of gurney flaps front and rear, tried to help a little bit with a mild increase in downforce. I guess part of me thinks, unless they want to come up with something that either makes a bigger hole with leading cars, meaning multiple, not just the car up front is punching a hole that really only the car directly behind it can use to their advantage to sweep by, which is pretty much the case. Sebastian Bourdais spoke about all throughout practice, and we saw really kind of sort of play out again in the race where, you know, Takuma Sato running in third in the final laps, he was third. It didn't look like there was any real chance for him to get to first maybe possibly might have been able to hook up and do something with Rossi, but it didn't play out. Maybe if they had five or 10 more laps, who knows, but it did look like, yep. First and second in whatever train those two can play as Seb described. And that was about it. 
I don't honestly know, John, what IndyCar would or should do to improve the just entertainment factor in terms of passing. Adding more downforce, you know, we are going to have faster cornering. In theory, that means cars can maybe stay a little bit closer, but I also don't know if, you know, with that added downforce, if that then makes it a little bit harder to get by on the straights because you have everybody carrying, you know, a little bit extra downforce. That's trimming out could be something that some teams try and do a little more than others to try and sweep by. But does that, do they then lose out in the corners to the ones that are carrying more? And again, I mean, these are all things that can certainly be explored. I just, I am at a little bit of a loss hashtag me personally to think of what IndyCar should do to try and create a dynamic where uh, lots of cars can be in the mix and potentially clusters of cars going for it and passing one another to get to the front. Um, I don't know. This is maybe something where y'all's feedback would definitely be appreciated. I don't have the answer. Uh, That is clear. But maybe some of you all do have thoughts on technical changes that could be done. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, We talk about push to pass. Is there maybe a separate thing where it's the inverse of Formula One's DRS, their drag reduction system? Uh, Is there a little system where if you get within three car lengths of the car in front of you, you can press a button and a very small little parachute deploys that slows them down for X amount of time. So it helps you get by. I don't know. Again, I'm not sure. Um, Definitely would love to hear some thoughts on this, though, for next week's show. Hey, if we want to make the Indy 500 a little racier since cloning well maybe the answer is cloning alexander rossi does he have a little brother does he have a sister uh, who we might be able to get in the field does he have relatives i don't know um yeah since rossi tends to be the guy i know that in 2018 oriel servia was also one of the guys who was doing crazy passing this year our pal oriel was the guy doing all he could to prevent people from passing so to your point, John, in the absence of multiple Rossies doing holy cow stuff, what does IndyCar do to maybe make a race more exciting if, um, you know, we were very fortunate with how things played out in the last quarter of the of the event. Not totally sure that, uh, you know, without a big crash, without a red, without setting up this sprint to the finish, if we had just gone green more or less the rest of the way, I think. Folks would still be celebrating Simon if he had won or Rossi. Obviously, we'd be celebrating the winner as we always do. I just don't know if the race would be discussed, as you are uh, intimating here, John, as one that was truly memorable. All right, let's get down to the last couple of questions for me, and then we will bid farewell to the show. Chris Hoffman says, Marshall, what is the life expectancy of a Delara DW12 tub? Are there any still in use from 2012? Something that we had from another listener. Uh, Also, F1 using updated helmets this year. When will IndyCar mandate them for use? Uh, I do know that there are some drivers indeed using the the latest, greatest specification. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when IndyCar will mandate them, but I can't believe they're going to wait beyond this year um you know 
there are some things where we can say IndyCar is definitely pushing to be first. I can't say exactly why this wasn't mandated this year as well. But yeah, there are some drivers that have done it and that's been voluntary. I do have to believe, though, that when we do come back for 2020, it will be a standardized thing and a standardized expectation from IndyCar. As for the life expectancy of a, of a carbon fiber tub, in theory, these things can be used forever almost. I mean, there does come a point in time where they lose a bit of torsional rigidity, at least from what I've heard. Most of the the leading teams really like to say, hey, after three years, three, four years, uh, they're going to buy something new just to have something new to remove any question as to whether there's anything that the older tub has given up in terms of competitive awesomeness. Uh, Let's see. Going to go to Jameen Tuttle, who says, love the race in this past weekend and really all season. And asks, do race engineers that I speak with, do they feel like they have a handle on the Universal Aero Kits in year two? I would say yes. Uh, Obviously, Speedway is a little bit of a different animal. The Indy 500 is a little bit of a different animal just because uh, we've had a moving target in terms of here's some new aero pieces to try. Obviously, there's an issue that was experienced last year with the front wing with it stalling um and such so there's some things to overcome there but yeah for the most part we're talking just about anywhere else i don't hear a lot of head scratching or folks saying i don't get it i don't understand it so yeah i'd say pretty much a non-issue and let's see what else uh ryan terpster again you got us covered on both twitter and facebook ryan said what kind of race do i expect saturday night in texas pack racing lots of passing hard to pass there's a new tire uh there's something new there in a tire standpoint ryan we consider last year how blistering was uh one of the unfortunate themes that came out was also blazingly hot uh when cars hit the track on thursday um that's going to be the question mark which makes it hard to say what to expect so knowing that firestone found an issue uh, or saw an issue and then tried to react as best they could. And I think did a really solid job, really good job of managing that. Hard to say. Um, Texas, a little bit of a meat grinder in terms of tires. Uh, we've also, again, as I mentioned earlier, you, I just I have visions of, of flames and flying parts because I've seen it happen there. We've all seen it happen there so many times. So, Till we have a better feel on tires and as to whether they are degrading quickly or that they are consistent, really hard to say what we're going to have Saturday night. Just mention quickly, though, I still kind of like that. I know we got another kind of tire question here from you uh, or on, you didn't know it, but a, a another question coming back to tires. I do love the fact that we got this variable. We don't know. We don't know what it's going to be. Uh, there's yet another change. How will uh, teams manage it or will there be any issues caused by it? I don't know, but that is again, to me, part of the fun of IndyCar that it's not just, okay, Hey, what's going to be happening at the Canadian formula one race? Well, Mercedes most likely is going to be on pole. Uh, Ferrari will most likely be a disappointment. 
and we'll see what happens with Max Verstappen if he runs into somebody or does something really remarkable. Uh, there's your podium, and with you know either two Mercedes drivers or one Red Bull or one Mercedes, one Ferrari, and maybe who knows. Again, we pretty much know what's going to happen this weekend in Canada, and for those who like knowing the results of sporting events before they take place, there you go. For those who like having no clue whatsoever what's going to happen in their motor race, well, Saturday night at Texas, I can't tell you a thing. Uh, we just need to uh, we need to get a little closer, and even then, I'm not totally sure what exactly is going to play out. Let's see. Just winding down here, scrolling through some questions, and what else... Mike Jablo asks a question. I probably should have moved this a little bit closer uh, to the front. What is your view on the packup issue that not, did not work in Marco Andretti or Ryan Hunter Ray's favor as expected on Saturday? Yeah, that that was certainly a topic. I, I'm not exactly sure where the consistent inconsistencies are stemming from with IndyCar's race control. Um, I need to spend more time thinking about this and ask more questions. I know that coming out of the 500, there were lots of questions on durations of cleanups and lengths of yellows. Why did it take so long for this or that to get cleared up for us to go back to green Saturday? At Detroit seemed to be another one of those things where I'm not in race control. I don't have the bank of 20 monitors in front of me showing every corner and being able to pick out, you know, is the reason we're yellow, still yellow, uh, not the fact that there were three cars that crashed and turned five. Um, those are gone. Those are all taken away. And there's no one on track. So that's all been swept up in that area. But is there still a safety vehicle in turn nine that's parked? Who knows? Rearranging a tire barrier or picking up a piece of debris or again, are, I can't see all those things. So I don't know if in some, and it felt like there were too many instances on Saturday where the yellows just dragged on and on and on. And again, since I don't know if there were mitigating factors elsewhere in the track, causing those yellows to run longer than we could see and expect Wherever the uh, major problem site was, things cleared and ready to go. I don't know. I do know that in a somewhat short time span, I'm starting to come to an opinion that's still not fully earned because I need to do more investigation, but I'm at least starting to have the formation of an opinion that we do not have the absolute priority to present as many green flag laps of racing as possible that the priority to give folks the competition they paid to see and as much of that competition as possible uh, it just feels like we are like we've lost sight of that a little bit not drastically but i think of this I think of yellows as a football fan. I think of yellows almost like injury timeouts. And you hate seeing the guy down on the field. You hope that they don't need to put any braces on him because he's broken something or whatever. 
you really hope the guy pops up, dusts himself off, walks to the sideline, and is back playing here, you know, in a couple of downs. That's what you hope for. Yeah, also, after a while, there are some instances in the NFL where you see, like, oh, my goodness, this guy's been down forever. And the guy then pops up, and you go, oh, okay, hey, that's great. That's the outcome we wanted, your health. It also kind of seemed like, based on the duration you were down, like, holy cow, you know, is he still alive? You know, did this guy get snapped in half? Again, just you look at the time spent with things shut down and what you would expect the related calamity to be, and then you find out, oh, okay, well, no, actually, it's not the big calamity that we kind of expected, but we burned the time for a calamity. Maybe I wonder if those things line up, and it just seems like of late we've been having more instances where you go, all right, boy, this must be a real calamity. Okay, no, all the cars are cleared. Okay, no, well, all right, there's no sweeping up going on. Uh, Okay, but we still spend another two or three laps farting around, going around the circuit behind the pace car. Okay, Uh, again, I I don't see it all, so I can't say if all these instances should have been exactly the length they have been, but there uh, there might be some value, though, in just questioning internally whether there is enough emphasis being placed on giving paying fans at the circuit and those who are kind enough to tune in as many laps of green as can be safely presented. Uh, What else? What else? What else? As we ramp down, you know, we have, uh, we have one here from Brian Cohn who says, do you have any insight as to why those chief stewards over time start to default to single fall restarts in the rain so often? As Robin Miller complains, uh, it often robs the fans of exciting, a really exciting part of the race. And he says, if wanker club racers like me and thousands more of us can start races in the rain, surely 22 top flight IndyCar drivers can as well. And he says the sarcasm button uh, is sorely needed here. Uh, yeah, I mean, with the... The Saturday race started in the rain and going yellow right away. That blew the traditional opportunity to do the side-by-side start. So I understand procedurally why the race did not uh, have its traditional side-by-side commencement. But yeah, um, I don't know. They're just... (laughs) Some form of... What's really going to be the best form of entertainment committee? Um, That might not be a bad thing to think about as well. I know that there's lots of procedures. There's lots of rules. There's a lot of things to follow. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm just saying as seemingly every year, IndyCar fans, racing fans, maybe in general, learn a heck of a lot more, uh, really are, are not just passive. Hey, look colorful cars going around in circles or whatever that's fun but actually really getting in deep knowing a lot of things having high expectations questioning why did you make this decision why didn't you do that that's cool that's the thing you really want and we see in so many other forms of sport where folks know watching a tennis match all the little minutiae that makes one player better than the other or what decision was made when and why It's so awesome that IndyCar just week by week is getting to that place where many fans who watch are truly engaged in all aspects. 
it also means that when things like this happen, you know, folks say, okay, um, why couldn't you, you know, all right, well, maybe if your rules don't allow you the flexibility to do that right now, I get it, but let's maybe think on a bigger scale. What is going to be the thing that again, coming back to safety, what is the thing that we can do safely that is going to present the most entertainment, most joy, most satisfaction, um, we don't have these races just for the teams. Uh, if this was strictly just private competition, we've lined up 24 cars, go race, beat each other up, do whatever. A winner will be determined. Prize money will be given. You'll hoist the trophy. You'll swim in the, uh, in the little statue area there, uh, the little fountain. If all this is just being done privately then cool, make up your rules, do what you want, no need for TV cameras, no need for radio, no need for anything. But if you're going to put the damn thing on TV, if you are going to present this, make this a well-publicized championship for folks that can pay to come and see in person, you know, folks are now asking more and more questions. Why do you do this thing this way, which doesn't seem to have our best interest at heart? So I know that in this very specific instance, Brian, we went yellow right away. Therefore, the traditional side-by-side start didn't happen. And once that was cleared up, the race was started in restart mode compared to start mode. Fully get that and not picking at IndyCar for doing that. Just I would say that as you look to the future, maybe there's cause to question as to whether that couldn't be shifted a bit so that fans do get that side-by-side start at least and i know uh we've had and then lost side-by-side restarts drivers definitely many drivers were not too fond about that because of the higher rates of contact and damage and such but again the what's in the best interest of the fans and making this most entertaining department i will gladly help form it and fire in a bunch of really bad suggestions if and when that happens uh you know i will just close here on something that you know it's the the topic of the week and that was yesterday actually while interviewing marcus erickson when we got confirmation that uh boy max chilton is no longer going to be competing on ovals at least this year. I don't know if he's going to come back next year once we have the uh, the full arrow screen in place. But that I would say is certainly something that is you know worthy of closing on and discussing. You know, there's there's been a lot of heat. Uh, actually, take that back. I don't know if a lot's the word. Expected amounts of heat and derision. Uh, reading the comment section of a certain media outlet that is my primary client, which is always awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, comments of, well, you know, racing takes two balls and all kinds of things where painting Max's choice to step away from ovals is certainly aligned with some form of Feminine qualities, lack of strength, lack of this, scared, blah, blah, blah. Man, can't tell you how much I have no time for that garbage. And it's true garbage. Uh, And if you're a listener who wrote some of those things, I'm not apologizing for saying those things about you. Uh, I'm just being very honest. 
It's complete garbage. Um, most of us have never been in an Indy car to begin with, much less been in an Indy car on an oval at 220, 230 miles an hour. Nor have we been in a vehicle traveling those speeds on an oval and slammed into a wall. Most of us don't do those things and then also have a wife or husband or kids. And so when someone like Max, who is married and has a very nice life, we know that he comes from wealth, but regardless, this is someone who has said, without going into too many details, this isn't for me at this stage of my career, at this stage of my life. And I respect the hell out of that. And I I just, I'm not surprised there have been those who have chirped and called him all kinds of things. Of course, many, if not all of those who say those things do that from the safety of a keyboard, not from uh, the lack of safety sitting in a Indy car saying, well, I do this. And I think anybody who doesn't do this is a wimp. If name a current IndyCar driver came out and said that, I think Max Chilton is a punk. All right. Not saying I'd agree with it, but at least I know that the person saying it has done it, has actually put his life or her life at risk. And having seen a number of good friends die on ovals, high-speed ovals in particular, We know that's where the risk lies. We know that until next year, the risks are still going to be much higher than anyone wants them to be. Um, Again, I mentioned earlier about opinions on whether yellows are lasting longer than they should. And, you know, it's a feeling that I have, but it's not an earned thing because I haven't put in the time to really get to the bottom of it. That's my mindset here. It's all about earned. Having an opinion, it's the easiest thing in the world. No qualifications required. No effort required. I think this thing. Who cares? Who gives a shit what you think? Who gives a shit what I think? Truly doesn't matter. If someone's going to say, though, ah, this person's a punk, this person's weak, this person's whatever you consider to be a description of someone who is not manly. Cool. Have you earned that opinion? Um, <laughs> so... Reading the comments from folks who've never done this. Uh, I've raced cars. They weren't super fast. I mean, they were smaller Formula Fords and a little bit of touring car stuff. Uh, Managed to hurt myself in one. Managed to crash and hurt myself. Still carry that injury today. Not saying that like it's a badge of courage. I'm saying it was a badge of mediocrity. But I do at least have a general idea of what it's like to spin in the rain uh, in some scary fast corners and thankfully come away not hurting myself but having that code brown (laughs) you go yeah so when a a driver says boy this rain is too much uh we need to stop these tires cannot handle it the whatever thing is cannot handle it this is too too risky we're too unsafe my response is having been in that situation a little bit as a driver uh yeah I'm there with you. I'm trusting you because you are the expert. You have earned that opinion. I don't know. 
Um, anybody that has negative things to say about Max Chilton deciding to not do the fire explosion fest that is often Texas Motor Speedway uh, place at Pocono that has claimed the life of one of my best friends and uh, at least for now stopped the career of one of IndyCar's most talented young drivers. Um, I got nothing but respect for Max. That's the other thing too. So, you know, he knows this decision was going to be met with whatever low hanging fruit. You're this, you're that. Um, rather than let peer pressure or whatever negative things might be said about himself, maybe guide his decision he actually just decided to be true to himself, stick to it, and uh, weather whatever proverbial slings and arrows came his way. So Mike Conway made this decision, and I can't think of many drivers that are braver than Mike Conway. That guy, <laughs> that guy is nuts, absolutely nuts. And after getting beaten up and hurt badly multiple times on ovals, came to the conclusion, you know what? I love racing. I love it. This is a little bit too far for me. And I'm hoping with IndyCar's aero screen, the, uh, let's just call it the, the F1 halo that will now sit beneath or behind the aero screen itself. I'm hoping this level of safety could be something that brings a Max Chilton back where he says, all right, yeah, um, the majority of my fears are now eased. If I were to have a really bad crash, oh, you could still break bones. I mean, again, there are a lot of things that could happen, but you know, this is something more protection wise. I feel like we're heading in the right direction. My Conway, who knows? I mean, uh, any IndyCar team would be smart to try and get his services, but you know, is that a guy who might say, yeah, you know, this aero screen, if it was around a couple of years ago, I might not have made the decision that I did. I just come back to Max Chilton has done this. Max Chilton has been excellent on a number of ovals in his IndyCar career. So sadly, the place where he's distinguished himself the most is where he's choosing to step away from. I don't know if that's going to result in better performances on road and street courses, but I can say that this is a guy who has led the Indy 500 for many laps has definitely shown us he is willing to push to the very edge, take many risks, and at this stage of his life has said, okay, I have done this many times now, and I feel the time is right to stop doing this portion of IndyCar racing. Nothing but respect for him, and I don't expect everyone to agree with that. I just sometimes hope that folks are a little bit kinder than they are but this is the internet that we're talking about and these are article comments as well that we're talking about and social media and kindness is not always a virtue being practiced all right with all that said this is the week in indycar this is presented to you by cooper tires the Justice Brothers, and our friends at torontomotorsports.com. Don't forget that MPP checkout code for 20% off of everything they have in stock for the next week. Thank you all for listening, and I'm hoping that when we speak next week, other than telling you we are home, 
and getting into a little groove of next steps. This holy poop emergency that uh, my wife have been in for a couple of weeks now. I think, what, day 16-ish we're at, right, I believe, today. Um, I'm hoping this starts to fade into the past and just definitely becomes something that there's no need any longer to provide updates on. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Week in IndyCar show. Thank you for listening.